what really gets my dick hard is Most recently, I've been working um, with Metallica on a new album, and what brings us together here is that they've got their own studio, which they've had for quite a while, but sort of been going through some some changes and sort of updates and making it a little bit more of a <laughs> upgrading their artillery over there. Welcome to Middle Up Your Podcast. I'm Ethan Luck. And I'm Clint Wells. And Paul Moak. Paul Moak is in the house. Paul Moak is back. And no, no need to yell, Ladies guys, and gentlemen, Paul Moak. Paul! <laughs> yeah, guys, I'm here. Holy what? shit, this, it worked. I've been here the whole time. <laughs> Welcome back, our friend Paul Moak. He hasn't you, left my house. <laughs> if you, uh, Do you have any water? <laughs> if you've been it's a fan of the right. show, if you've been on the ride with us for a minute, you're no stranger to our friend Paul. However, if you're new, by the way, welcome to the show. We're an all-Metallica podcast. My homie Ethan and I are two professional musicians who gather together once a week to talk about all of our favorite band, the greatest heavy metal band of all time, Metallica. Metallica. And Paul is here with us, not only just as a guest, but as we deemed before we started rolling, a guest host. That's yeah. right. Paul, I mean, this is your fifth episode with us. Is it really? It is. Well, we originally had Paul on the Bob Rock episode, mm -hmm. all three Detroit episodes. As, right. as you know, as listeners, Paul road tripped it with us to Detroit. And now for our episode on Greg Fiddleman. Well, and he also did the Chris Cornell episode. And the revisited. That's right. So it's like uh, five, five and a half episodes. You've been on the show almost as many times as Ethan has. And yet I haven't gotten one check. <laughs> oh, it's coming. Not one okay. residual. Yeah. There's a reason they call it snail mail. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, hey, thanks for having me, though. Seriously. Of course. I so, love this. Paul is here because we are talking about our new favorite producer, Greg Fiddleman. For sure. Yeah. Greg Fiddleman, as you know, he helped mix through the Never. He did de uh, Death Magnetic Engineering and, of course, produced the beloved Hardwired to Self-Destruct. Yeah. He's kind of a rising star in the Metallica pantheon, right? He's our he's our homeboy now. Oh yeah, yeah. and he's like full time with those dudes. It seems to be the case. Yeah, we'll see in another thirty seven years when the boys decide to make another record. If Greg's still alive, <laughs> yeah, exactly. If Greg's still alive. <laughs> so the benefit, as usual, of having Paul around. If you guys don't know, Paul is a producer, a mixer, a songwriter, an engineer. Yeah, he's a great guitar player. The benefit of having him with him with us to talk about Greg is that he's going to give us all sorts of great insight into production. For all of you gear nerds out there who have been regaling us with your many sweet emails about talking about gear, yeah. we will be talking about specifically recording gear that's used in Metallica's HQ, where they recorded Hardwired to Self Destruct. Correct. Yes. So. I'm looking forward to all that cool shit. At the beginning, though, let's do this stuff. Let's do the stuff. Uh, iTunes contest. We have this iTunes contest. And I, so if you guys don't know What's what that, that is. What's that, you guys? <laughs> oh, we'll tell you. Sort of, what a great foil. <laughs> if you guys don't know what it is, what we've decided to do, actually, we've been doing this since the beginning. We have been a podcast from the beginning that decided that we wanted to give back to our listeners. If yeah. you guys have been on the ride with us for a while, you know that pretty much from the beginning through maybe the summer, we gave away guitar picks 
as yeah. a reward for leaving us a positive review on iTunes. We have since upped the ante on that. Oh, yeah. In a real big way. Uh, we'll be giving away up to five prizes a month. This month, we'll be drawing five names. All you have to do to enter this contest is leave us a positive review on iTunes, and we will draw your name out of a hat. The prizes this month are the, the Master of Puppets Deluxe box set. That's like the released. granddaddy prize. Yeah, it's the big prize. Yeah. $200 value. A Master of Puppets fleece blanket, some uh, shot glasses, some pint glasses, and a flask. Yep. And I have to say, I came home from a co-write today, and all of this shit was on my goddamn porch. Yeah. Clint, te- Clint, uh, Clint texted me, like, what would you say? Like, the shit is here. The shit is here. I unboxed it all so I could take a picture. How warm it. is that blanket, dude? I have yet to snuggle up oh, in it okay. yet. Because I, I, it took everything I could muster not to open all this <laughs> and just throw it above my head like money and swim in it. And an added bonus it. if you win the blanket is you, you get Clint's musk on the blanket. You get a little bit of my DNA, okay, if you order the blanket. Yeah. I, I won't go into more details on that. But it's real easy to win. And the thing is, we're going to do these contests once a month. So if you leave us that review, your chances of winning increase every month. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's pretty cool. It's I think ve- we're pretty cool for doing this. Uh, we're pretty fucking Am awesome. Am I allowed to say that? I, you just did, and I'm not going to edit it out. So Actually, I think the fans are pretty cool for funding the opportunity for you to do this for them. That, that is very true. Paul. Paul, see how smart Paul is? This is why he's here. This is why he's a guest <laughs> host and not just a guest. Exactly. He's a, gr- he's a great guest host. It, 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 he's exactly right. Uh, through our Patreon, which we've talked about a ton, patreon.com slash podcast, we have uh, gotten financial support from fans uh, who either just, you know, they just want to say, hey, I dig the show, here's five bucks, or whatever. Uh, we have some cool incentives on there, but all this all this prize stuff is possible because of those people. So We're, we, we're we, literally putting every cent we get through Patreon back into the show, and this is one of the ways that we're doing yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this isn't going in our pockets. Not no. at all. Uh, it's going back to you guys. So we have a new patron this week, which is amazing. His name is Jeff McDonald. All right, Jeff. Yay. Yay Jeff. Uh, <laughs> at the baseline, what you get is a shout out and you get an MP3 of our cover of The Unnamed Feeling. We played it on our St. Anger episode. Yep. If I do say my, so, so myself, it's a, a beautiful, beautiful rendition. Grammy Award winning rendition. Gorgeous. Yeah. Just gorgeous. If you pledge five bucks or more, you get our entire cover EP where Ethan and I have covered and reimagined yeah. your favorite Metallica songs. Call toll free. <laughs> <laughs> Call toll free right now. Would it win a Grammy over Jethro Tull? That's the question. <laughs> we That's don't the know. Goal. We don't know. 20, 2018 Grammys are just coming right up in February. And the I guess. Grammy <clears throat> for best podcast cover song goes to <laughs> Jethro Tull. <laughs> Jethro Tull. <laughs> So go check that out if you're interested. If you want to just hang out with us online, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, and we're on the email. Our email address is show at gmail.com. We read a select few a week. I'm yeah. not going to say how many. Sometimes it's 20, sometimes it's 35. Yeah, tonight it's at least 60. <laughs> so strap in for the next seven <laughs> hours. Uh, so if you want to get a hold of us, we love hearing from you. Even if we don't read it on the show, we do read it and take the time to read back because we very much appreciate you guys engaging with us. And with no further ado, let's get into some emails. Let's get into some emails. All right, Ethan, you want to start us off? I would love to. This is from our good friend, Teddy Heath Robinson. The man with two first names. With two first names. Teddy says, hey guys, great job on both shows. Some Kind of Monster is the most important rock film ever made. Um, it's it, it, it's a, a warts and all look at the band that had hit rock bottom. The first time I watched it was around 06 or 07 when VH1 Classic started playing, ev- playing it every 15 minutes. As they do. 
as they do. Um, the more I watched uh, this train wreck, the more I appreciated it for what it was. Um, also, I found my appreciation for the band growing even stronger. How many bands would have broken up under this strain? Um, I know how close they came, but Metallica ain't going out like that. Zone yeah. it, Teddy Robinson. A little, a little Cypress Hill reference there. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, you're right. We've we've discussed this in the past. I mean, I mean, what I what we all watched them go through in that documentary. Like, I've never really dealt with stuff that bad, right? You know, and I've been in bands that broken up, you know, right, or under that level, or under that that level of microscopic analysis and i don't think anybody can really like fully relate to that because not only is it like maybe you have it been in a band and dealt with something that heavy but you're not also the biggest band in the world going through that with cameras on you 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 know know what they zoned it that's exactly and i say that sincerely they (laughs) (laughs) no seriously hey hey, paul have you been zoning it lately or i'm zoning it right now yeah what's your zone level about (laughs) 36 I love that you just asked what a zone level was and we haven't even determined a scale. So 36, so 1 to 100, let's say. I'd say I'm at like a 55 zone right now. I mean, look at the lights I have in my studio right now. pretty zoned up. Yeah, I'm zoning it hard right now. You guys fucking disappoint me, man. I'm at 100% zoning it. 100%, dude. I'm wearing my St. Anger t-shirt. You guys notice that I'm wearing a St. Anger t-shirt? zoned out be like zero? Zoned out is zero. Zoning it, 100. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. If you're fully in the zone, you're zoning it to 100. Kevin Van Dam, a patron of the show, writes, Gentlemen, first, I very much appreciate the insight on Phil from this episode. That information won't change my opinion of him, however. I think he's a disingenuous parasite, Mm. marginally skilled in his discipline, who imparts only enough value to create a sense of indispensability among damaged people, specifically affluent ones, for as long as length of time as possible. That's my opinion. Wow. All right. Oh. Coming in hot. Coming in hot, Kevin Van Dam. Kevin says, second of all, I appreciate the rant about phones. It shows I support your viewpoint. People acting within a... Fr- <laughs> I love this next paragraph <laughs> because he must work in like zero-sum game analysis because he writes, people acting within a free market system have the freedom to choose the shows that they buy tickets for on the basis of both the act and the policies surrounding them. I think Tool has a very good model for this. They are unequivocal about their stance, which provides the added market value of exclusivity for their fans at the shows. And that vocal stance protects them from the bad faith bargaining of a fine point type of policy. While this policy may only be available to established bands like Tool, I think setting the example is admirable, if not necessary, for the future of acceptable fan behavior. That's like a... That was like a... Uh, an economist article or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he. I think he does. Uh, he does uh, guest articles for the economy section of the New York Times. Well, needless to say, if you heard our last episode, I fucking agree with him one hundred percent. Yeah, I do. Uh, he goes on to say, "I wish that policy had been in place when I saw my Metallica, sh- my first Metallica show in St. Louis this year. While the show was incredible, which I was at that show by the way, rocking that snake pit. Oh yeah." While the show was incredible, there were many moments of self-consciousness knowing that I was in someone's phone video and perhaps on YouTube later, and maybe I looked like a complete fool while being lost in the music that connects to me. And Or lat- did he look like a complete tool? Ooh. Ooh, got it. A tool in love That was such a dad you. joke, I'm sorry. But your zoning at level's going I'm, up, Paul. Yeah, I'm at a 77. <laughs> Kevin says, and lastly, if the band doesn't want that sort of distraction, either to give fans the best show possible or because they do it on behalf of fans like myself, 
That should be the end of the discussion. 100% agree. My word's not his. It's a voluntary transaction in which people should abide by the parameters of the performers and the venue. If we don't like it, we can save the considerable cost of tickets and beers and travel, etc. by listening to the records. I think enjoying a concert as it happens is the best way to do it. Just one man's opinion. Thank you for all you do. Well, Kevin, thank you for that very insightful mm. analysis of the problem. Yeah, I agree very, with you. Very insightful. I, I agree, feel, I, totally. Yeah, I almost feel like Kevin Van Damme should, that, like, band should have him on stage before the band starts to basically read what he just sent us right. to, to, the, to the crowd. And everyone's like, oh, wow. Chances of him getting booed off stage, pretty pretty low? <laughs> uh, I'd, say if that, I'd, say if, I'd say if he did that uh, before Metallica took the stage, I feel like his zone at level would be zero. So, <laughs> so without going into another whole rant, just because we do have Paul here, Paul is an experienced touring musician. You, you agree with this stance, generally speaking? Yeah. Uh, a good friend of ours that tours with uh, the guitar player in Paramore, he tweeted maybe four or five weeks ago, he's like, I mean, I get that you want your your token of, like, hey, I was at this show. So take a picture, grab a quick video, whatever. But do you have to hold your phone up for the entirety of the set? The whole time, yeah. And make just a bad video that no one wants to watch, you know? But that you won't even watch, probably. No. Yeah, I, I, well, I remember. Uh, was it last summer that, uh, the Guns N' Roses show when they did the arena? I caught the, uh, myself stadium? one time holding my phone up, and I was like, "I'm that guy." Right. I, I, I see, remember. The what makes you not that guy is that you thought to yourself, "I might be that guy." And I turned my phone off, and I and I, I like went from looking at Slash in my, you know, to looking at his the, the glass his leather to looking, clad to looking at him like he was literally thirty feet. You away don't need from to me. zoom in on his leather bulge. Yeah, just <laughs> use your own eyes. And it was amazing. Yeah. I remember thinking, I, I was like, at some point during that show, I was like, you know, I feel like I, I've already taken t- enough photos. Right. And I kind of just thought, okay, you know what? I, I, this is going in my pocket. It has to go in my pocket. I'm not taking any more video. Right. Only thing I did was at the very end, like Paradise City, was like fireworks. And I was like, that's kind of cool. Took a little quick well, video. The, and that's the deeper it. question is like, let's say you went to Guns N' Roses last year and you didn't take a single picture. Did you go? Like right. we live in a world now where it didn't count because you or didn't. It, or if enough people didn't like it on choose your social media poison, did, did it matter? Right. Yeah. And someone someone on the forums who who disagree with me, which is fine, um, they invoked the sort of like old man get off my lawn thing, and to that I just have to say fuck that. That's not what I'm saying. This right. isn't a case of that. Yeah. This but is you're case- missing out on an opportunity to enjoy so much more. Well, it, it, <clears throat> like it or not dear listeners it is an area where we do have certain expertise in terms of this is what we do for a living this is we see this from both sides we see it when we go to shows we see it when we play shows yeah and i'm we're old enough to remember a time where it wasn't as ubiquitous as it is and they were better times i have better memories of shows i i think it's more being from the stage when you're looking out and seeing an audience that's all collectively kind of moving to the same heartbeat. Right. You're missing that now when they're all looking through their phones. It's like, the, it's like 1000 people instead of one movement. Right. You yeah. Know, exactly. Enjoying the show. So it is a bit of a bummer. Well, know? all right. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, it is. Yeah. By we, the way, we, do you mind if I'm filming this? Paul, put your phone away. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, Paul said his phone Paul, this whole no fucking time. Paul. Paul? Oh, shit. He's here still. Speaking of that, Paul, you want to read this next email? Sure. I wish I had an accent that I could do Danny Derryberry. Danny Derryberry. Danny (laughs) Derryberry. Danny writes, what did you guys think of the last scene with Bob and Cliff? I thought for sure that you'd cover it. I know it's either easy to overlook with (laughs) 
things cough cough like outlaw torn cough Ooh, burn burn what's he talking about there nothing <laughs> old news <laughs> fake news don't make my zone level news. go down you guys fake my news. zone level is on the rise right now come on but i did think that last exchange jams had with both of them <laughs> james was, oh james had with both of them well, I'm like the Ron Burgundy of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Go I'm fuck Ron yourselves, Metallica fans. San Diego. I'm Ron yeah, Burgundy? Burgundy. But I did think the last exchange James had with both of them was pretty telling as to just how important they had been to the band and himself. Here was a grown man talking about being afraid to go on without the support system that they had provided uh, him with. It's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. Um, Man, it was hard to cover everything in that film. There's, it was, there's yeah. There's so, so much. much. But we, I mean, you could do a part three and kind of skim through the whole thing and find you know, stuff you know to cover. You know why I but. think maybe it didn't poke out as much to you and I is there's a phenomenon that happens at the end of every record you make, at the end of every tour you do, just called the post-tour blues, the post-record blues, right. yeah. where you get super bummed and you're texting the people you did the thing with for like the first week. Yep. And it, it doesn't, to me, seem especially unique to that situation, although obviously they were 700 days in the making. Yeah. But I guess I maybe sort of explained it away as like, oh, that's what we all do. We all get sad when it's over. Which that's really what it comes off to me as. It's like, he's just sad it's over. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, mean, for that that long a period of recording in that, he goes to rehab and all this stuff, you know, that's like, I mean, that's like, that was three years coming to an end. Right. You know, now it's time to move on to the next chapter of this you know, world of Metallica and go on tour and stuff like that. And I, and I think, I think it bears out in the film. He's, he is ready to say bye to old Phil. I well, mean, that's what I was going to yeah. say. It's, it's not all roses because they've definitely gotten to a point where Phil helped the band learn how to communicate with each other. And then when they were ready to move on, he wasn't. Right. He still wanted the gig, yeah. you know. Oh, I, have he had indi- I have individual I'd... coaching uh, for, <laughs> for both for each yeah. of you. I'm yeah, gonna do performance enhancement enhancement coaching for all of your pet gerbils too. And yeah. I think by that point they were all like, "Yeah, no, you're not in Metallica." But I think you know? I think what he's really emotional about in the scene is is Bob. Yeah, because yeah. and Paul knows this um, from a special place, but like, you know, a producer is like. A papa bear, man. Yeah. Producer, oh, yeah. producer is the dude really holding it all together. And Bob even holds it together even psychologically a lot. Yeah. It seems like in the he film. He does, yeah. I mean, there, yeah, there's times in the film where he he even stands up to Phil and was like, look, I've been doing this for a long time, making records and stuff. And he- I he, love that scene. I know, me too. And he has to kind of step in and, and say like, the only way to do this is to do this. It's and to work harder. It, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I love Bob's role in, in this movie. How about this little bit of subtext? Do you think maybe James knew- it might be one of the last times they ever worked with Bob. I mean, they maybe that's know. where I don't think he had the 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 the, for, the the vision of that. No, I think everything was still new. I mean, you think at the end of that album when they were like had the final mixes and they were playing for Cliff Bernstein and this and that, that at any point they were like, God, this doesn't sound good, and where they maybe just so so invested in it that they were like, I think they were too close, too yeah, close to totally. It. That maybe at the time they thought this is cool. Although they didn't go play any of those songs live, really. They only did two. Yeah. Yeah, they haven't played I many. still, though, I think at that point, you know, th- there's a writer that I'm friends with that is a big Nashville country music writer. And uh, James James Hetfield? Or? James Hetfield. <laughs> he actually wrote Carrie Underwood's new single. Oh, Take the Wheel? Sick. Yeah. Now, um, James, Take the Wheel? <laughs> 
Phil, take the, Phil, take, take the wheel. wheel. Phil, please don't take the uh, wheel. Yellow sweater, take yeah. the wheel. No, his name's Bob DePiro. He's like in the Songwriter Hall of Fame. He was uh, BMI's like... No big deal. Lifetime Award, whatever. And uh, he told me one time, he said, the best advice that I have for you when you're writing is you you just got to do the work and not ask yourself whether it's good or not until it's done. Right. And... You know, it's easy to say that in a songwriting thing because you write a lot of songs and a lot, not a lot of them make it on a record. But I think Metallica was probably in that mode where it was like, we just got to get this out. Yeah. We've got to get this out of our system. We've got to heal as a band. And I don't think they were really taking a lot of time to ask, is this good? Does this stand up to you? I would argue that that's what they've done their whole career. I I think when they were putting Fade to Black on the tape, they weren't worried about it being a ballad. I think they were just doing it. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I, I think when they were m- mixing the bass out of Justice, they weren't worried about what people might say about it. When yeah. they were making groove yeah. rock, yeah. when they were making load yeah, and reload. What does uh, Lars say when he, he said, we've done it, guys. We've finally made aggressive music with, with a, a positive, positive message. message. <laughs> it's like, like, no, you did you? Yeah. But did you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for the email, Should we just Danny. talk about that movie for the rest of the episode? <laughs> yeah, we should have had you on epi- uh, the two episodes of I Some d- Kind of Monster. I haven't listened to the second episode. Did y'all ever get to the extra bonus features? No, not no, yet. No, we didn't. That, I think that's, that that's going to be, like, be another episode, okay. I think, yeah. Because all I want to talk about is the one where Lars is eating a sandwich, and he's it's called <laughs> Lars Stews and His Anger. Where he's bummed about the party? Yeah. Yeah. Because he didn't have a Hawaiian shirt on because he didn't get the email that everybody else had. On. Like, like, we're going to no, talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's, he's like bummed that they're throwing a party for Kirk. I'm like, can't Kirk have anything nice in yeah. Metallica? Yeah, give that. Yeah. Let did Kirk you, fucking have no, his party. My favorite line is he says, if some fucker had told me to wear a Hawaiian shirt, then it would have been my decision to not wear a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> and that's, oh, that's, that's the result of three years of Phil Tal right yeah. there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's some zoning it shit. Uh, All right, so moving thank on. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Danny, for the email. Our next Can email. Can I try it? What's that? Danny Derryberry. That was there good. Go. That That's was good. better That's than mine. Yeah. Danny Derryberry. Danny Derry Dirty. <laughs> dirty Dirty? Yeah, I said it wrong. Uh, next email is from our good friend Nick Roller. The What's rock that? and roll lawyer. The rock and roll lawyer, man. The metal lawyer. Uh, great recap, guys. Still one of my favorite films of all time. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> um... Totally notwithstanding the fact that it's about my favorite band, the value of the film on a human level is immense. Um, I do got to stick up for Phil a little bit. Okay, here we go. Um, as a guy who has spent many years trying to attain this, uh, the sometimes job title of counselor, I completely get it. Money or not, these people come to you completely at your mercy and filled with need. If you care about your work the, the f- and fulfilling that role, it's extremely hard uh, to not be, to not become personally attached and to become invested uh, invested ideally you are an advocate and a voice of reason for your client but uh, he needs to become yours you want that success not only for your own personal sense of pride but because you remember how the client came to you you have an outsider's perspective on how on, on how low that person started it it really takes a lot a lot of mental endurance. Uh, and never ending, never ending supply of self awareness to stay at a safe distance. While Phil did fuck up and get too close, in some ways, I'm glad he did. I think the band, and especially James, needed to know that it's okay to get close. It's okay to be t- be taken uh, uh, back and jolted. It's okay for a relationship to end. It's okay to be a little hurt. Life goes on. Uh, fear, um, fear of pain is natural, but in, in quotes. Um, 
moving into a fear is what makes makes all the difference. Uh, Phil was a sacrificial lamb for that uh, for that lesson. Thanks, That's Nick. Good point. He says, "P.S. For Christ's sake, if any of you guys ever buy a, commer- a commercial property, make sure the previous owner didn't zone it." <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Nick, for the email. Um, when he says yeah. fear is pain, do you think he meant to say life is pain? What is that? Uh, pain is pain. Life is pain. That's oh, when Kurt, Kurt's anger. big yeah. moment. What was the whole thing from yesterday? The Buddhist. Guarantee? What? No, the Buddhist thing that you had. That this uh, birth is pain. pain. Life is pain. Death is pain. The cycle of suffering is called Samsara. Where are you with us, James? Somewhere else. Uh, our last email is from our patron, Nicole Williams. Hello, What's Nicole. Up, Nicole? Nicole says, hey guys, loved the Some Kind of Monster episodes. I'm thinking you could have even made it a three-parter because there's just so much to unpack. When this hit the theaters, I remember sitting in the movie theater feeling so uncomfortable. (laughs) Uh, Maybe it's because you had a rock in your shoe. That's probably it. Have you ever thought about that? That's probably it. And you know what to do when you have a rock in your shoe? Zone it! You gotta zone zone it, man. Uh, she says there, there will always wow. be those cringeworthy, cringeworthy moments, but I've come to understand how important this documentary is to Metallica's history. Without it, San Anger may have been unforgivable. I think that was an excellent point. That is a good point. The documentary yeah. sort of redeems the record. It kind of does. I mean, when, when does we, that answer the question? Why did these guys put it out? Do you think they were looking long term? Mm. And said, like, we'll put it out, and then maybe this documentary will kind of justify what yeah, just happened. Point in I, our think that's, I think that's maybe, the strongest I think maybe. defense I've heard for putting the movie out. Because yeah. when I first saw it in the theater, I was like, these guys have made the worst mistake of their career letting us see this. Right. And now I think it's the smartest decision yeah, they made. Yeah, true. It really is a documentary you, you need to watch multiple times, yeah. I think. Yeah, it's for, rewarding upon multiple yeah. times. How about 30? <laughs> how about 30? You've seen it 30 times? Probably. Yeah. I'm I probably, bought it. And we would just have it on the back of the bus uh, all the time. I say I've probably watched it around, I don't know, 10 to 15 times. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Yeah. Uh, she ends up by saying, by the way, I'm currently tearing my place apart looking for This Monster Lives, the Joe Berlinger book I mentioned in our last episode that apparently Paul didn't listen to. She says, I own it. I've read it. I'd like to reread it. But do you think I can find it? Um, I believe in you, Nicole. I'm going to go ahead and say, now, Nicole, I don't know what your life is like. You may be a level 10 hoarder. I don't know. But I believe that you can find that book. I believe that step one, you need to zone that shit. Oh, <laughs> I believe I can fly. I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the sky. <laughs> I think about it pretty much every night and day. I believe I could touch this guy. <laughs> as long as I'm zoning it. Yeah. It's okay. Wait, don't you have something in this room that you haven't found yet? Oh, I'm sure there's something in this room I haven't found. We've talked about it a bunch of times. Uh, there's something lost in this your room. Your anthrax patch? Back patch? No, it's, that's literally... Oh, it's... See? It's, I think See? it's in here. He, he doesn't it's know here. where it is. He doesn't yeah. know where it is. It's close. Feel it coming through that open door? Um, well, I know one thing Paul lost in this room when we did our St. Anchor episode. Virginity, of is, course. Well, his virginity. That's number one. <laughs> Everyone loses their virginity in this room. Um... <laughs> Clint gave a gift gifted or no, sorry. Paul gifted all of us with St. Anger stickers, one even for himself. And, and then he I left, it, left it on the floor <laughs> and it's gone. No, no, no. It's on, it's in my garage. No, I brought a toolbox. Oh, now. you found it. I brought it back to him. Yeah. yeah. All is well. All is well. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we hope Nicole finds her book and yeah. we thank you all for your generous emails. And that concludes the emails.
It's time to talk about old old, old Fiddy. Greg Fiddleman is due. He's due. He's due. He the, hardwired to self-destruct. Uh, Which is al- almost a year old it's, already. We're coming up on wow. a year, November 18th of last year. Yeah, it'll be, what is that, this Saturday? I mean, or I guess if you're listening to this, it was a couple days ago. I've loved it since I first heard it. Oh. I had very few problems with it. Yep. And I've got to say, I love it even more than I did when I got it. Absolutely. And and speaking of, we, we will be doing a part two of Hardwired, like a, a not necessarily revisited short episode, but... Just uh, you know, had time with it now. And yeah, that's next. That's next week, actually. So next yeah. week, stay tuned for that. We're going to basically do a whole other analysis of Hardwired. Yeah, because when we did it, it was pretty early on because uh, the record was so new, and we were excited, and it was one of our early remote episodes. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've, we've spent a year with it now, so it's it's becoming one of those classic Metallica records. Did y'all start the podcast before or after Hardwired? After, right after, after. We, we 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 already had the idea. Oh, that's right, because it was right after January, right? January first was was yeah, when we launched, but gotcha. um, uh, maybe two months before that, I had approached Clint like, "We should do a Metallica yeah. podcast, and I think you should be my co-host." It's a great time to start, and because I, I was like super pumped about the new record coming out, and I remember hearing like the clips of all the songs, and I was just like, you know, I already had my other podcast, and I wanted to start maybe a music based podcast, and that's when I approached Clint like, "Dude, you want to do something like this?" Maybe I actually remember we, being in the men's restroom at my studio and my phone ding ding and what do you do when you're on the toilet you scroll through your phone right of course that's one of the things i do there yes so i pick it up and it was a text from you and it was just a link to was it hardwired to self-destruct the video for hardwired the song hardwired oh yeah before the record and you were like I can't. You said something like, "Oh my God!" You know, like oh, it's I, happening. I, oh man, I, I mean, I've mentioned this on on a, an episode before, but I remember sitting on. I was sitting on the couch watching a movie with my wife, and uh, it was like a TV movie, so it was a commercial. And like, I was scrolling through Instagram, and all of a sudden, it was just like a clip of the hardwired video in black and white and the strobe light. And I was like, "Oh my God!" I yeah. looked at my wife. I'm like, "I'll be right back." I went and plugged my phone into like my monitors in my studio so I could hear it, or maybe put headphones on something. I don't even remember now, but. It was so exciting, and I was just like, and my first thought was like, who in the fuck is recording this and yeah. producing this? It sounds so good, and it's our good buddy uh, Greg Fiddleman now. Uh, I mean, this is, I know it's going to offend some of the sensibilities of some of our listeners, but I think, I think other than, <laughs> I think Load and Reload are some of the best sounding Metallica records out. I think this is a run for the money for best sounding Metallica record. Mm. I think you're right, yeah. Um, and we're going to get into all that. We actually, you know, one of the benefits of having Paul here is we're going to really talk a lot about. We're going to get so nerdy about the gear that went into what makes these sounds. Cause yeah, because it, it's yeah. relevant and there's, it's not a mystery how some of these sounds were achieved, other than the magic that comes through those dudes' fingers, right? Of course, but, yeah. Um, but to sort of get contextualized with Greg, we're going to just sort of do some facts. He's not interesting enough to do a ton of facts. <laughs> there's not enough known about the man. There's some, there's some good notable stuff about how he got his start and all that, though. That's yeah, true. Yeah, so yeah. he was born September 4th, 1965. He's 52 years old. So he's around their age, right? So 52. I, I, the interviews and things I've seen on him. He looks good. He looks great, yeah. I, I think one of the reasons he gels so well with them is that he kind of comes from a similar... He's around their age, and I think he yeah. has some similar rock sensibilities. Yeah. yeah. Um, not much is known, really, about anything until he started working. In the late 80s, he was in uh, the rock band Rhino Bucket, which I've never heard of, but they were good enough. You've they're never good heard en- of Rhino Bucket. They're good enough to have a hyperlink on Wikipedia. Oh, there, there you, you go. go. 
which is more than I can say. For I want to say that hyperlink showed up after he did the Metallica record because yeah. that's kind of what, like, in my opinion, like. <clears throat> well, they got signed. They they um, when he was the lead guitar player in that band. Oh, nice. And he was credited as Greg Fields. Greg Fields. That was his. That's what he chose as his rock name. Not Danzig. Not Ozzy. Yeah. Greg Fields. Not John Christ. <laughs> not Buckethead. <laughs> Buckethead. Not Bono. Not, not Madonna. Uh, not DJ. What's his name? Ashba. Ashba. What's his name? The guy that you're literally with. follows him on Instagram. By the way, let's go ahead and say this. Yeah, the, the weird guitar player in Guns N' Roses, current incarnation of Guns N' Roses. Oh, no, wait. No, former. No, he's not no. in. He's he was in, now. He's he in was, 6 a.m. now. He was. He, he lasted <laughs> until 2012. I saw him at tw- in 2012. DJ Ashba. Paul is obsessed with this motherfucker. I'm obsessed because when you talk about zoning it, yeah. this guy is Where's he at on the zone level? 1,000. 1,000. He's, he's got he's, his own water. He's his o- own water. He's over the scale. He's, he's, tipping, he's the tipping scale. the scale of zoning. He's towards, the of the zone. It's towards, you know, self-centric behavior. Wow. So Greg's in this band, Rhino Bucket, that literally no one, including their own parents, have ever heard of. <laughs> and, I, and I don't mean, I'm not saying that to be mean. No, I, I've never heard of them. It's just literally a fact. I yeah. asked all their moms, they'd never heard of this band. That's on Wikipedia. And um, they got some record deals, kind of fizzled out. And Greg talked about how one of the things he enjoyed, he says he even enjoyed it more than playing live, was he enjoyed making their records. Yeah. And their records were produced by people. I think they had some famous guy from Memphis produce one of their records. And so he was definitely one of just the players, but... Unlike me, in most of my recording career, and, until now, I've, I've really not been that interested in the recording side of things, but I made so many records where I should have asked the producer, what microphone is this? What compressor oh, is that? Yeah. What outboard gear is this? And, um, but he seemed to have a knack for it. And he, when he really comes online active in the relevant work that he's doing is when he got the gig at Sound City yep. in 95, 96. And what was the first record he engineered? Uh, it was also an unknown guy. Yeah. Um, that was in a band, but he was starting a solo record. His name was Tom Petty. <laughs> Thomas Petty? Yeah. What are you talking about? Tom Petty? How do you say the last name? Uh, Thomas Dude, uh, imagine that. Petty. First assistant gig at Sound City, your new job, which he said in an interview, he was like, I just happened to call in the 20 minutes between when they were looking for last a guy, guy left yeah. and the next guy came, and they said, come on down. Right. So right place, right time, shows up for Rick Rubin, Tom Petty and most of the Heartbreakers. I think it was all the Heartbreakers, but Stan Lynch cutting uh, right. Wildflowers. It was Steve Ferroni, Yeah, yeah. It was Wildflowers was his first assisting gig. Yes. Wow. So can you can you maybe describe like so if you're coming at the ground level, even on a big record, yeah. What's the ground level engineering look like? Because it's not very glamorous. No. Oh, I think it's, he was a runner, wasn't he? Yeah, I think he might have been a runner. Which at that point, it's like anything the band needs. You know, food, coffee, for lunch, food anything, yeah. drugs smokes whatever yeah. and and uh, real quick before you get into this if if anyone listening has not seen the sound city documentary it's fantastic that oh, dave Grohl produced must it's see must see you have yeah. to watch must it watch for yeah. sure continue please uh so it's probably the most it's it's the starting position at a studio well, in in england like where you know you could argue that there were british people yes the, the most <laughs> most rock and There's roll a queen. you know points back to the beatles right yeah so the term over there was T-boy, and that's what you were doing, was you were okay. making tea all day. Right. And the hope was to get a T-boy job so that you could become an assistant engineer. So it's kind of like a, a pecking order where, you know, when he comes in as the assistant, 
he's kind of allowed access to, or when, when he comes in as a runner, I'm sorry, he's kind of allowed access to the assistants. So you try to learn their gig and then hopefully get pump, bumped up to an assistant gig. And then you kind of get access to the, the head engineer, maybe the producer, and you start kind of learning what they're doing and just move up. And that's the way it worked for a long time in the studio business is you wanted to get a job at a studio so that you could eventually become a record producer. Right. Yeah. One um, of the things he talks about is when he was working at Sound City, he talked about how it was a very analog vibe there. Yeah. This is in the mid nineties is when pro tools is kind of starting to happen. Yeah. But rock bands in particular were kind of, um, snobby about it, yep. which I get, I, I definitely prefer out of the, yeah. out of the box stuff, but <clears throat> he said one of the things that really cut him apart was that he was really willing to learn Pro Tools. Yeah. So one of the, his first bumps up was in editing. He was able to edit in Pro well, Tools. It's probably a big deal back then because it's, it's it's this new program that at that point only been around for what a couple years maybe. Yeah. Well, computers um, weren't used a lot in the making of records. And typically, it was the younger guys that were assisting on the session that you know the a producer that's you know been around for a long time is like. What is this thing? What does it do? You yeah. do it? Okay, yeah. Go edit that for me, please, because yeah, I right. don't have time for I'm that. I'm becoming like that. Yeah. What's Snapchat? <laughs> How do I do it? How does it work? You have people Ethan Snapchatting for, for you. Well, I'm just like, you know, like, I don't understand it, and I'm not even interested in trying to. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You remember I know. You, I was in this conversation with my social media director today, and she was <laughs> like, man, we really need to post. No, I'm just kidding. I wish you had a social media director. <laughs> What's sad is that's a real job. It oh, yeah. probably is. Yeah. And they probably make more money than I, we do. I, oh, yeah. I literally have friends in town who do it, and they have nice jobs. Yeah. Wow. They're, they're, having, a, they're having a pretty good time. Can you introduce me? I, I don't have a job right now. <laughs> Hello, I literally don't have a job right Hello, now. Hello, my name's Clint Wells. It's <laughs> 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 my side gig. I'm on Snapchat 24-7. So... He, it's interesting you said the younger guys. So the younger guys are kind of like generally just in life in any area, a little more hip with what's happening and progressive. It's that and, and it's well, grunt work that someone who's more established doesn't. Right, want they to just do. have more time. Yeah. But guys like Greg back then, they're also <clears throat> they're also super hungry. They, totally. they, they they'll right. do whatever they can to climb totally. that ladder. In that documentary, Nick Raskin Lennox is one of the guys yeah. that like started off as like an intern and then worked his way up, you know, the ladder and stuff. And so he must he must have done something right because right. he he kind of won the favor of Rick Rubin and Rick started using him on all these records from Adele to uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Slipknot. Sl Slipknot. I think Slipknot was the one where he really kind of formed a relationship with the band mm. as, uh, you know, because Rick's thing is like he's more of a... He's hands off. You would typically call an executive producer, and I know, I know, in the Metallica world, we kind of slag his role with the band in that he was never there, and and coming from Bob Rock, who's such a hands-on, mm -hmm. you know, be there for every part of the record, it was probably a big kind of rubberneck move for them to go to this guy who only shows up every once in a while and says, "I like her, I don't like this," and yeah, but you know what, I to me where Rick Rubin fits in the Metallica pantheon in terms of like what he gave to the band is he had the foresight to say of, of the crew that work under him on, you know, as he executive produce all these, you know, records, he, he was the one that said, you know what? Greg would be a good fit with this band. Yeah. And he put them in the room with him, right. You know, with them. And I feel like we have him to thank for that, you know? Well, I mean, Rick, Rick threw him in there, and I mean, uh, you know, as much as we know about Rick Rubin kind of showing up once a week or whatever it is, 
I mean, Greg was with the band during Death Magnetic more oh, yeah. than anybody else. Oh yeah, if you if you watch that, there's a great. It's over two hours. Yeah, sort of, it's I'll not official, it but weekend. it's sort of an unofficial documentary of the making of Death Magnetic. It's kind of the it's Greg and Metallica. It well, may as well I mean, be hardwired. He's, he's essentially producing. You know, I think, I think basically, I think he had the same role in both records. It's that Rick Rubin was the executive producer yeah. of Death Magnetic, and Metallica was the, the executive producer of. Uh, hardwired hardwired yeah well one of the things greg did say about when he sort of came online with metallica is he said when he jumped into death magnetic they had already done a whole bunch of pre-production yeah. with rick so <clears throat> do you want to maybe explain a little bit what pre-production is yeah and if the the the, the buzz term the street term pre-pro yeah. pre-pro you're saving pre-pro, a lot of time bro. by the way by calling it pre-pro yeah. oh yeah you, you're yeah. literally saving milliseconds on well your think life. about it oh, when yeah. the artist calls you and says hey i'm gonna be late what are we doing today you can just say pre-pro 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 is kind of like, you've got the songs written, but you need to get them into shape. Exactly. Meaning, I mean, to, to, you know, with, with any of these terms like production, actually, I don't know what Ethan's doing right now. <laughs> Ethan, literally, uh, Ethan literally just got up during the episode. That's my, ne- that has never happened well, before. I thought, okay, listen. He feels comfortable that there's three of us that he can well, duck out. Well, first, and we'll just carry you should have seen the look I gave Paul when you were there. <laughs> like, I was what like, "What the fuck is he the doing?" The look you gave me was, "Do you want to do this con- this this podcast permanently with me?" You know what? Y'all get the fuck out of my house. <laughs> Honestly, I felt comfortable because you asked him to explain what pre-pro was. Yeah. yeah. See how much time I save by not saying pre-production. Yeah. Um, and I thought this will be a good time to get some more ice for my drink. There you go. <laughs> Paul's going to kind of break down what pre-pro is. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm going to start by there's I uh, I did some, you know, online research or whatever and there's this quote from Kirk about what uh the role of Greg as producer with Metallica is. So let me read that and then we'll break down what pre-production looks like all Okay. That. So this is Kirk, so you know, for what it's worth. This isn't Wikipedia, you know. The title producer itself is a bit ambiguous. It differs from person to person. You can call Rick Rubin a producer but he's not the same type of producer as Bob Rock, who's there for every note. At the same time, Rick Rubin gets stuff done. Greg Fiddleman is a different type of producer in that he's with the engineer, always looking to try and move the project forward. And that's different from, say, a Dr. Dre, who's the type of producer who's actually making the backing tracks, producing the music, and writing the music. In the hip-hop world, Dre is a producer. So it's so ambiguous. If you were to go by the traditional term, we're doing it with Greg pretty much. And mm. that, that was, that says a lot when they were basically someone interviewed the band, right. When they started making hardwired and they yeah. said, who's producing. And that was his response. Oh, wow. Okay. So well, pre- first of all, I didn't realize that Kirk was so down with the DRE. Yeah. Hmm. He likes his hip hop. Some into some gangster rap shit. But it's a good point, <laughs> nice. man. In the hip hop world, a producer is the guy that like makes the beat. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. They're track yeah. builders. Yeah. yeah. Like the and chef. In rock and roll, the producer may not ever even touch an instrument. Right, right. Well, and, like you know, Jimmy Iovine doesn't play an instrument. Totally. Um, so, pre pro, what are you laughing at? <laughs> just, <laughs> what? <laughs> Jimmy Iovine is just one of those dudes that just. Yeah. <laughs> what? He's just. I know he's a bit of a genius in what he's oh, done he in his you? musical career, but he just bothers me. Have, you seen, see, have you seen the Defiant ones yet? Uh, it's ha- good. I have the not. HBO documentary? No, I haven't. 
It's pretty, pretty it, good. It, it will probably actually just encourage everything you just yeah, said. Yeah, it's not going to change. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm sure. I mean, there's plenty of things I've seen on Jimmy Iovine, like, and, and even that, if you've watched that um, Hip Hop hip hop Evolution on Netflix, it's a four-part series. Yeah. It's really cool. He's in it a bunch. <laughs> and every time I just see him with his Beats headphones on, because I think he owns Beats. Well, him, yeah. him, him, and him Dre, right? from Beats on is kind of jive. Yeah. yeah I'll like, say that. When I see old stuff of him with like Tom Petty, it's But But, but the shit with Patty Smith and Tom Petty and of course, Bruce Springsteen of course. and all that, yeah. it's pretty dope. So not to sidetrack Paul on pre-production here, but yeah. he said but you, you were, ma- But you were saying, yeah, in hip hop, a producer could be someone like Dr. Dre. Who's definitely like kind of creating all the music? It's just the track guy, right? Is what Building it is. tracks. So anyway, pre-production <clears throat> with within a rock. If you if you're looking at it from the rock view of what a producer is, which is you know the way Metallica works, pre-production would would mean they have flushed out song ideas. Uh, maybe flushed out. <laughs> flushed out. They flushed it out. They flushed, yeah, it, flushed out? it out. Oh, okay. Just <laughs> making sure. <laughs> um. I love that as soon as I said the word flushed, this look came in your eyes. And I was like, oh, God, what have I, I mean, done? Dude, you know what that yeah. was? We've that was the look of a man who's zoning it. Yeah, he's zoning it hard. I'm at, I'm at uh, I'd say, 94 right now. Yeah. So this definition of pre-production, just so you listeners at home know, is going to take the rest of the episode. <laughs> yeah, we still haven't really quite gotten it, have we? Yeah. So anyway, the band comes to the studio with you know in this in Metallica's case they show up at HQ and the songs are written right the song mostly right. with in Metallica world it's like riffs and sections okay and so usually what they do is it's James and Lars with the producer going through these ideas and sections and kind of pu- saying well this section goes with this section that could be a verse and chorus for this song in a typical case it's usually the songs are flushed out and you're you're talking about arrangement uh tempo um the key of the song uh, dynamics dynamic whether it's going to be a single whether you think it's going to be a single or not and so how you treat it for that sure. way um in metallica world it's really Man, we got all these ideas. It's almost like songwriting still. It is. Oh, yeah. It is. I I agree. For sure. Which, they're an interesting group in that, um, man, if you just watch, if you watch all the the making of Hardwired, I have a whole new respect for Lars, man. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I texted these guys this weekend because it's almost like the attitude and the drive is still there, but without all of the baggage and, and like unnecessary drama of St. Anger days. Sure. Hey, how he's kind of aged and kind of grown yeah. into this kind of there's cool, this, cool there's dude. This, this great, uh, you know, and you know, it's like we've grown up with this band. I watched uh, a year and a half in the life where they're waiting on Lars till 2 a.m. and he comes right. out in a robe and, yeah. you know, with a drink and it's like, come on, man. Right. Yeah. Now that, That's gone, right? It's the, yeah, it's like Lars is there to work. Yeah, And he he is, had, yeah. there's this great moment in the movie where, uh, Greg is kind of, kind of like, come on, man, you can do this, you know. And he goes, Greg, this part is really fucking hard, man. It's really hard to play. And Greg <laughs> says, uh, Well, I'll tell you now, if you play it right, we can all go home. Right. That's great. <laughs> and Lars's response is so beautiful. He's like, Yeah, but then what are we going to do for the rest of the weekend? Yeah. <laughs> you know. And it's uh, it was like just he's like he's just mellowed out. Yeah. He made everybody laugh. They keep going. But man, the, this guy's drive and if how he really v- approaches drumming as a function of the song, you right. know, 
And that's why him and James have been able to craft. And I've heard you guys talk about this on this podcast so many times, but like, I, I just have a whole new appreciation through the making of Hardwired on how in tune he is with how his drums are just a function of the song and how he can use those to help make the song better, you know? Right. Yeah, I mean, he. it, it, it seems like you could really draw trace a thread <clears throat> through the years of, like, just humility. And, yeah. and whether that's the St. Anger experience or whether it's age or whether it's, you know, he had some kids. I think it's all of that. It's all kind of added yeah, up yeah. to... And what I see a lot, especially in the making of that Hardwired, is uh, I still see a, a gleam in his eye when he looks at James. Yeah. And it's oh, a yeah. very, it's a high respect and a love. Yeah, of course. There, there, it's at a certain point when you see them kind of like working together and looking at each other, it's it's probably a similar look they gave each other when they were making Kill 'Em All right. and Glad Lightning and Master of Puppets and but stuff. But with all that's happened between them, though, like all these years later, you yeah. Know? And dude, what other band mm-hmm. at their age with their catalog is putting that amount of sweat equity in a record? Right. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it blew me away. Well, the, and, and it's weird because like, well, not weird, but what impresses me about Greg is so he comes online with Death Magnetic and he says they had done most of the pre-production. So <clears throat> he says that he met the band at HQ for two days of rehearsals and then like a week later they were in LA cutting Death That's Magnetic. Yeah. And so he kind of got to know the band on the making of that record because Rick was, as you said, more hands off. And Greg kind of had to be the dude, like, duking it out in the room with the dudes. Yep. And you can see it in that, the making of that film. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Which is almost, in some ways, more interesting than the hardwired videos, because it's... Well, he's, he's, he's in a weird spot, because he's not technically, like, you know, on paper as the producer. Right. right. But he, he's, he's the engineer, but... but he's but he's Rick, doing what a producer would do oh, he, in the well, day in, day out of it. I think he had to, because Rick Rubin's not there every right. day. And that's a tough mind boggling. The, the band know. to swallow, because it's like... No, we hired this dude, right? And he hired you, and so now we have to. It says a lot about Greg, right? Yeah. So they burned that record down. It was a huge success in terms of a lot of people who were frustrated, maybe with Saint Anger. In terms of it wasn't Saint Anger. (laughs) Well, it was just definitely a a callback to the power of the thrash, the speed. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if 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 you take out, you know, the there are problems, right, with the fidelity of the recordings. Yes, production wise, I mean, I I know there was a lot of articles that came out when that album came out about what the Uh, issue was because it was like yeah, like the first the first thing everyone was talking about was like digital clipping. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we talked. Did we talk about this on the Death Man? We did. Yeah, we we've talked about Um, it. That seems like an an eternity ago. Yeah, it Um, does. But you know, all that all, all the. Audio issues aside on that record, if you put it next to the audio quality of St. Anger, it was like, I remember thinking, wow, it's really dry. And I know Rick Rubin will make really dry sounding stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's Slayer. You know, he, he's done mm-hmm. a lot of work with Slayer. That's, right. That's very dry and thrashy. And But this one, I was kind of like, you know, uh, I don't love the production, but then I had to kind of like just focus on the songs. Yeah. And Which are just stellar. They're great. I mean, There's only one song I might skip in Suicide and Redemption. Yeah. But other than that, I think it's a great record. Well, and so, Greg had such a huge hand in that. And totally. I mean, no, no, none of us were there, but you could almost say like, I don't know, did he have a bigger hand than Rick? Well, I would say, I would say so. I think Paul's right that Rick, uh, I think the nicest thing you could say about Rick involved in this record is, he, the dude has accolades for a reason. He is sure. a bit of a mastermind. 
And if part of his genius, I, I think one of the things Rick did was he said, you dudes, you dudes need to go back to your roots. Right. Yep. You need to examine why Master of Puppets was so great for you. He encouraged him to do that. And he had so much, they respected him so much that Rick saying, uh, XYZ doesn't cut it. You guys need to go do this. They really right. paid attention to that. Yeah. All right, great. And he got them set up with Greg. Yeah. In, in a way, he, he almost groomed Greg to do what Greg now fulfilled last year yeah. with Hardwired. Right. And I do want to kind of camp out Hardwired for a minute. So the difference between Death Magnetic and Hardwired is Greg comes in, pre-pro's done. On Hardwired, they wrote the songs in the studio pretty yeah. much. They brought the riff bag in. Yeah, well, they, they did the old the old school way, which which they did some, you know, they did it on Death Magnetic too. I mean, they went away from that on St. Anger, obviously. But on Hardwired, like they went, it was a lot of that footage, it surprisingly Rob's in it a lot, but it's it, it, at the heart of it, it is... James and Lars. Yeah, Rob only yeah. has one co-write. He's one co-write, but he was in there with them, like just playing along with them. A lot of times, it's just the three of them, no Kirk. Another yeah. thing they did differently, <clears throat> according to uh, this awesome SoundCloud interview. Do we know what it's called? What, the the interview, who it was with? If you guys just Google Greg Fiddleman uh, interview, it'll come up. But is it Blabbermouth? Uh, well, Blabbermouth <laughs> broke the interview, but I don't know who the uh, interview was with. Right. But he talks about how so most records as Paul can elaborate is you do all the what we call basics first which would be the drums mm -hmm. you get master takes of all the drums then you get maybe the the electrics and the bass and you overdub you kind of do vocals last maybe but Greg said what they did for Hardwired was they would just do batches right. so they would do three songs at a time yeah. and they'd maybe get 60% there because maybe James hadn't written a lyric yet right? and then they would take a few weeks off and then they would do the, the next three and then during the making of those next three, maybe while Kirk was doing his solos, James would want to cut a vocal for one of the first three. Right. And he says that's kind of how they did it in these batches of threes. And there would always be, the first batch would always be a little further along than the next. Yep. And he said on this record, um, in the 11th hour, as they say, was when a lot of these songs became great. Yeah. Well, you can kind of see that in that making of Hardwired. Right. You know, I know it's like... It's basically like song by song as the as the band released all this stuff on. But the, it's through on the a YouTube lot of page. time. It's through two years. Well, it's and if, years. You, if you look at the gear that amasses in the control room, right, you can tell when in the record they're working on the song. So oh, e for sure, yeah. So, so even for me, a guy who kind of kind of knows this world, that perplexed me that the gear, the outboard gear, would come and go. Can you maybe describe a little bit what yeah. outboard gear is? So what what's great about the documentary is there's stationary cameras because they didn't have probably the, as big of a crew that they had in St. Anger or whatever. So there's kind of the same shot of the control room. Right, right, yeah. That comes and goes the whole time. And like, it took me a minute to figure out what was going on because there'll be one scene where the gear that's, what they, they call it outboard gear. It's basically all of the microphone preamps, compressors, EQ. All, all those things in the background with all the knobs on it. Anything that used to process yeah. the signal. They're, they sit in racks, and there will be some scenes where the racks are like almost floor to ceiling. Like they took them to like, but when they're gone, it's like they took them on tour or something. Or what? no, what it what it is is they just kept adding stuff as they're working. So uh. if you see a scene where there's nothing on top of the racks, it's, right. it's early on in the okay. Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't think like I, I, I didn't think, piece I that think, together. I don't think that the the way that like it's pieced together when you watch that making of this record, I don't think it's pieced together chronologically. No, it's definitely exactly. not. You For know, sure. so yeah, they you, show each song, and so. They could be working on the end of the song, and you see that, you know, there's like you actually can't even see the doorway anymore because there's gear right. in yeah. a way. But the earlier scenes, there's there's nothing, and it doesn't go 
like you said, chronologically, it just goes for, for each song. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of get a hint of where they are in the process by the amount of gear that's piled in the room. I also noticed, uh, I, I rewatched this last night, um, at certain points there's like... Or by the length of Lars's hair. Exactly, <laughs> the length of there's his... There's one point where I'm like, dude... Shave it, that. Yeah. <laughs> if I would, my uh He starts looking stylist, like his dad, dude. I would say shave yeah. that. I'd say shave that. <laughs> yes, of course. Um I thought it was interesting that uh, at certain points there was like no guitars on the wall. Right. Yeah. And I don't think that was a thing where it was like, well, it was early on. We just didn't have any guitars in the studio. I think they were like, maybe they were out doing shows right. and on a break and all the gear was still on the road. Because there, there's guitars in, in the making of this thing that... I've never seen before. Yeah, you never see, yeah. you've never seen live. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of cool ones. Um, yeah. There's like a black snake bite that like you don't hardly ever see Hetfield playing right there's um, one scene where the entire wall is explorers yeah yeah well and you, and, and if you pay attention there are there are some like of the old school classic ESP Hetfield yeah. explorers it's the one that says and, eat fuck on and it and the yeah. V and the, yeah. the Electra yeah, yeah. V is in there right yeah the Electra V is in there um, so yeah it's interesting when you watch this thing when Greg is working with, with them how the gear just kind of comes and goes uh, but I think that's just the, the way they edited the whole thing together. Yeah. It's not, you know, like we said, it's not chronological. Well, he, he says before they started making Hardwired, they had a meeting in San Francisco or where, Marin County or whatever about, they already knew they wanted to hire Greg. And he said that Lars and James constantly have this conversation of, why? what's wrong with HQ? Like, why is HQ exactly. not ready to rock? Right, yeah. And they kind of had Greg sort of put a budget together, and it was Greg who got the board in. I would love to see that budget. <laughs> well, he said he got a, is it an S, he got a, a, so, G, a K or an H board from a Switzerland? J. Okay. And is that an SSL? Yes. So for those of you, the SSL, that's the board, you have two SL boards at I your do, place, yeah. right? I two 4,000s. Oh, so, so, so not as good. So his are, his are technically... <laughs> five, bring it down, bring it lowest common artist. So not as good, right? His are 5,000 better than mine. Or if you added mine together, his is 1,000. How many zones is that? Yeah. So <laughs> you'd, 9, say, you'd say there's a zone in it at yeah. HQ, right? So, yeah. So basically, all of the, the documentary that you saw in St. Anger of them at HQ, I think a lot of that gear might have been some stuff that Bob Bob's, brought in. Yeah. yeah, rented stuff maybe. And rented stuff yeah. and... And so when they came to Greg, like, why did we go to Sound City last time? Sound City's not available anymore, right. for one. Or we just want to be closer to home. Which yeah. is probably more <clears throat> the case. And so what he did is, uh, what I read is he was working on a Slipknot record where they were at, I believe, Sound City. And they had to move in the middle... The, they took longer on the record than they had budgeted in the studio, so they had to move to another studio. So they literally marked on each knob on the microphone preamps where the level was set, where the EQ was, because they wanted to be able to get the same sounds. To recall the same right, sounds, yeah. yeah. And the studio they went to didn't have the same type of mic preamps. So there's a company called Brent Avril that has remade these classic Neve. Neve is the sound of rock and roll. That's what, like you know, 99% of the records that you've listened to growing up had some kind of Neve on them. That's why we sound the way we do right now in my We're house. Yeah. Rupert Neve is yeah. actually in the room with Rupert us. Rupert Neve is here. <laughs> Rupert, thank you for engineering Rupert? Tonight. Yeah. Rupert? But, uh, so they, they called Brent Avril and... Levine. And Brent Avril Levine. Just so teed up. And they were like, is it possible for you to come from Canada to where we're at with all these Mike Prees? But yeah. this is Slipknot we're talking about. Yes. Okay. And uh, 
the Canada was uh, Avril Lavigne joke that, that blew you're, over your head. You're welcome. It, it uh, did. Anyway, so they, uh, hey, you guys said you wanted nerdy. Here it is. What's that all about? So, this is why you're here. Keep going. So, Come on, eh? So they brought these Bryn, Bryn Avril Neve copies in, and they recalled all the same settings for the Slipknot record that they had had at the previous studio. And according to Greg, he said it sounded as good, if not better. Um, and so they finished out that record, but that kind of stuck in his mind. So when Metallica said, what's wrong with our studio? Can you get us up to, to snuff to make a record here? Right. That light bulb went off in his head of, we're going to get a bunch of, of Neve stuff from Brent a- a- Avril or Avril. I don't know how you say it. And uh, Avril. So they, the SSL board that you're talking about is just a mixing board so that you don't actually track the the record through it. So basically like what I'm talking into now is a microphone. So that microphone goes into a microphone preamp, which is the volume for that microphone. Essentially, yeah. That, yeah. And then you can run through EQ, which is like highs and lows and a number of other things before it gets committed to uh, Ethan's computer. Oh, which no, this is, is tape. Yeah, yeah. We, we actually record this to tape yeah. to Ethan's computer, which you then hear when we broadcast our, I love that I'm inserting myself. Oh yeah. Our, yeah. Our, You're involved, uh, yeah. Yeah. Our show. Your podcast. So, uh, but what Ethan has to do is mix the sound of our three voices. So that's three faders that would come up on a console. If you think of the old way of like any kind of time you've ever seen people in a studio they're sitting in front of this gigantic board with knobs so that's the ssl that metallica bought to mix their record but they still have to track it through these neve type preamps so they got that ssl and then they bought 32 channels of neve metallica already owned i think 30 something channels yeah didn't they want 80 total or something neve. so this is this is where i get really excited okay all right let's hear it what they wanted to accomplish is what you can't do in a commercial studio, which is when you're in a commercial studio, part of the reason why you do the drums first and then the bass and then the guitar because the channels. Is, is, is because there's not enough channels right. to keep everything. Uh, you got to use some of the gear that you use to track the drums for the, the guitars. Or right, whatever. yeah. Well, Metallica's thing in true Metallica fashion is we want to be able to do whatever we want when we want. We want to be able to record and mix. Record everybody at the same time. We want to be able to record, mix, master all at the same time. And if we want to go back and fix something eight months from now, we want it to sound the same as it does now. Yeah. And we want it to be of the highest level. (laughs) Right. And so they dropped some serious coin to make this happen. What do you you think? What do you think they spend on that? I I would say like 1500 bucks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Does that sound right? Probably. I would say like a gift card to Applebee's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, plus, yeah, definitely. Plus a uh, yeah, rebate from Walmart's. Well, yeah, Applebee's know, is definitely under like the Rupert Neve umbrella. Yeah, yeah he owns that. But I what mean, do you think the budget was? Yeah, like, each one of those Neve channel strips, the Brent Averill things, can be four to five thousand. So if you're talking, you know, they bought thirty or forty of those, and then the SSL boards. Depending on the condition, which I bet they probably tried to find one that was in really good shape. Greg said they got one that was a newer model in mint condition. You're talking at least a hundred. Whoo! Yeah, Damn. dollars. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, hundred thousand. I mean, but a hundred thousand dollars for just the board. Yeah. But this is the kind of band that when shit was getting weird with their documentary, they were like, "Let's just buy Electra out for four and a half million dollars." Right. right. Yeah. No. Of course, Metallica can afford these. Cl- kind, these you kinds know, of this things. is. I, I think it's either in the book or it's in the film where Cliff Bernstein goes. 
he's like, we can buy this film. Like, we can buy it. But yeah. uh, this is the most money we've ever spent. Well, what did they offer Rob to join the band? A million, a million I mean, That's my yeah. favorite scene in the world. As yeah. an imagine? advance, though. Yeah. Yeah, as an advance. So basically, you're not getting paid until you Well, and then when million. the accountant comes in, and he's like, you know, he'll be played, paid uh, 1.25% for in perpetuity until he's an established member, and they're like, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. 25% all in. They wanted to give him yeah. five votes versus... The, he's yeah, like, whatever. Everyone got 32 votes, and, the, and James and Lars are like, fuck that, he gets 32 votes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Pretty dope. Which is pretty awesome. So anyway, point being, they said, make it you know, where we can, can have the sound that we want at any time, whether it's guitars, bass, drums, and it stays the same for the entirety of this record through the mix process. And... Greg put it all together and it's fascinating to watch in the movie. Yeah. Um, if you're a gear nerd watching what they accumulate while making this record, you know, it must be weird to get tapped to sort of like facilitate a studio. Like, all right, Greg, mm-hmm. help us get the studio up. To is that, yeah. Up. Is that a feat on top of producing the record? Cause well, that's a full time well, job. He's like curating their studio. Yeah. But then B he buys all that gear for them and then he's got to like walk away from it. Yeah. Which is kind of a bummer too. Yeah. Yeah. I know that Rob used Greg's personal SVT to record. He talks about, wow. but oh, you know, on, for on the most, yeah, but yeah. for the most part, that's not his gear. Yeah, but he kind of like oversaw the purchasing of it. Yeah, it's kind of awesome. You get well, to spend somebody else's money and then use it for. A and year. well, and the thing is, even if they never use Greg again, he got them set up. I mean, they'll they'll probably always record at HQ now because oh, yeah. HQ is decked out. Now. You know what's funny. So I haven't seen it yet because I can't figure out how to listen to it on Beats 1 or whatever, but I saw the preview for Lars interviewing Greg for yeah. his Beats 1 show last yeah, yeah. Sunday. Yeah, I, I haven't heard it either. And the clip that they showed, Greg said, I just was going to sign up to help build you guys a studio and be on for a few months. Like I never wanted to be into this entire process. And Lars basically like, Oh, you're in. You're yeah. on my radio show. Yeah. <laughs> like you're so deep in now with us. Well, can know? we? I mean, I, I mentioned a little earlier, but can we? Can we camp out just for a minute and how good the record does sound and what an accomplishment it is sonically? Oh, and yeah. And that they made it on their home turf. They, they made yeah. it on their own yeah. terms with their own gear on their own label. And but it's, how? But how exciting must it have been for the band to? Because if you think about it, this is the first time they've had like HQ decked out. Oh, yeah. since Saint Anger. Yeah, because they didn't do Death Magnetic there, right? You know, they they well, were at Sound City. So fucked up because some of it was at the Presidio and right. They had I mean, to move the, the, it all and exactly. Yeah, it was a chaotic time, you know, back then. But that I mean, they had to have felt like like little kids like getting toys for the first time. It's like they're walking wow. in the studio and Greg is like, "Oh, I'm setting up these 32 preamps or whatever," and they had to walk in and think it was the coolest shit because you know up until then it was like. Yeah, they did San Anger there, but it was almost like, you know, probably like storage unit slash glorified rehearsal space. Yeah. It became you know. a legit well, yeah, museum. The museum. But here's the know. deal. Like when James came back from rehab, that was, they had just gotten HQ up. Yeah. So it was, you know, you know what it is. Wasn't like that he, like his first time to kind of tour what they had done? Yeah. Well, when he came back from rehab, they started doing therapy at H- HQ kind of got right. put together while he was gone. That was yeah. like something for them all to do. You know, and they made that record, but obviously, they obviously wanted had to go somewhere else when they made the record with Rick for Death Magnetic. Right, so yeah. to your point, Ethan, you know them doing Hardwired was like it's the first real taste of that. 
and I can't see why they would change it. And and think about this too, right? So Bob Rock was someone they looked up to who his work with Motley Crue and et cetera had impressed them. And he was kind of like Papa Bear, right? Yeah. Greg is a little more like peer level. He's their age. He's their kind of homie. Yeah. He's their like home turf cat. Right. Yeah. It's not such a, it's not really a Bob Rock relationship. Yeah. It's not. And, and not I, that Greg doesn't tell him what to do or right. Greg talks about how he was really hard on James vocally and how James is really patient. Yeah. Yeah. Because Greg likes to get a lot of takes. You can see that in, in this documentary, yeah. like whenever yeah. James is in that vocal booth. Right. And, and by the way, I love that he always has a guitar on. Yeah. I, I do that too, especially when I'm tracking harmonies vocally. Yeah. I always have a guitar on. I think for him, it's probably, and like I've done it in the studio, it's like, um, it's one, you're comfortable with a guitar on because that's what you do live. For sure. You know, you don't, you don't, you know. You, you can be loose. Exactly. You feel, you feel more at home with a guitar on. And two, he's, he's in there. He can like play notes and yeah. figure Dude, out harmonies and on, stuff. on all my demos at home, if you solo my harmony lines, you can hear me picking a guitar under That's it. Fun. Really? Because I have to sing it while I, I have to, first of all, pick it out on a guitar because I have a hard time naturally hearing harmony and I sing it while I'm playing it kind of off mic. Interesting, okay. Yeah, but what about that scene where James is trying to find a harmony mm-hmm. and it's James Hetfield of Metallica, the biggest metal band of all time. And Greg Fiddleman's in the control room with like this child's oh, Casio, Casio keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> look, look right there. <laughs> we got one. It's probably that keyboard right there on top of my organ. It's totally. like a little Casio. Shit. But but have you? Do you have experience of that when you're working with a singer and like? Yeah, I just think it's funny that it's like metal up your ass, and it's like ding 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 ding. Yeah, it's so weird. It's like the Paul Abdul treatment. Totally for Moth in the Flame, and just the way it looks like he's got it in his lap, and he's yeah. Yeah. Are there are there things that you notice when you watch? So obviously we have this great footage. You can kind of see the whole record being made. Yeah. Really, uh, is there anything you see a that you would do differently than Greg does, mm-hmm. or b that Greg does that maybe um, challenged you or inspired you? Like, what are some of your takeaways from watching how Greg works as a producer? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first is I feel like he's the next generation Bob rock for that band. And by that, I mean, he's the guy who's willing to be there before the band gets there and leave when, you know, after the band leaves a lot of the, the stuff of, of what we hear is what he assembled after the band would jam and leave, you Mm -hmm. know? Right. And that's a very Bob rock way of making, you know, like what you said earlier, like he's like, I've been doing this a long time and yeah, and it's just a lot of hard work, which is just very opposite of the Rick, you know, approach. So I feel like the band probably really felt comfortable because they were used to that way of working, of having that guy there. I think it is a more peer-to-peer relationship mm-hmm. like you were talking about. But some of the things that I, I took away were, man, his, uh, you know, incredible amount of patience. Um, he was very calm throughout the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I mean... I, Nothing... W- there was never drama. Exactly. I, I feel like because Metallica has been so used to having cameras around them for so long and made so many documentaries and, you know, behind the scenes looks at things, um, if there was any sort of blow up or conflict, I feel like after some kind of monster, like, w- they would show that. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, every song that's documented in this thing you never see Greg like losing his cool. No, he's well, just pushing I, it forward, man. I, I think, 
I think my general feeling is that Metallica is still making relevant music that matters. Right. <clears throat> they're not a legacy band. They're not resting on their laurels. Correct. That's really clear. Okay. But I do think we can't ignore the fact that the stakes are not as high for them. Yeah. So when you got Bob Rock on Black Album going, I don't give a shit anymore what you guys do. I'll let right. you guys fucking figure it out. All right. Yeah. Or you got him saying to Kirk, well, come on, Kirk, give us that guitar. Guitar, guitar player of the guitar year, of the year, year solo. solo. Yeah. And he's kind of frustrated sounding. Like, there's teeth in those sessions. Yeah, yeah. It's 1991. They're making the arguably the biggest record of their career. There was a lot more at stake. There was, yeah. That tactic is not going to work. With... Uh, no, I think it's over. You yeah. know, I think the days of... And, you know, honestly, if we're going to camp out just for a second in what might be deficient in Hardwired, maybe the solo is okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You don't have Bob Rock sitting there going... All right, Kirk, that's not going to cut it. Yeah. Right, yeah. You got Greg kind of being great at getting sounds, which he's an engineer first. Yeah. yeah. And he's like just a super cool, chill dude letting this great band be what's great about themselves. Lars is, Lars kind of produces the solos, mm-hmm. as we've seen. Yeah. and But you don't have that fire. You don't have that. Is Greg going to pull an Unforgiven out of Kirk? He didn't do it on Hardwired. Yeah. Correct. And I think and he no could have maybe, a, I think Halo on Fire would have been a great moment for that. Maybe, yes. maybe Dream No Actually, Agreed. I like the solo on Dream No More. Um, Halo on Fire comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. But I don't think Greg's going to be the guy for that. Yeah. Uh, maybe not yet. Uh, true. You know, maybe in the future. You maybe know, next I mean, time well, we don't know yeah. what, what amount of that falls on Kirk's shoulders yeah you know? well he did he did lose all his ideas before yeah. this record so. well you know what you know what greg does say about kirk that i thought is really uh nice is he says you know kirk can improvise forever yeah because kirk can play a solo a hundred times and there's something unique about each Every one. one yeah so it makes me wonder like okay maybe the problem isn't all kirk you know like right, if yeah. lars is kind of the gatekeeper of the solo which in what metal band ever, other than Metallica, right. has the drummer been <laughs> yeah. the fucking did, gatekeeper of the solo? Did maybe Bob was he able to kind of keep that at bay? A right, little bit? playing politic a little yeah. bit with Lars. Yeah, you know, it does surprise me a little bit that that Greg in in this in this uh, you know documentary about this record being a guitar player mm-hmm. doesn't kind of step in and be like, hey man, I think you can do you can fucking do better. I totally like, agree. And then there's also the fact of like maybe he did, but that's not what's shown right yeah yeah i don't know because um, maybe kirk was in a spot where for whatever reason interpersonal or otherwise yeah. wasn't able to really step up to the plate so as a producer too sometimes it's like you can't draw out of someone what's not there right yeah you know what i mean no that's great yeah but i think a- i mean there's a reason there has to be more to the story that kirk's in a quarter of the documentary yeah i think so too know? Even yeah. when it's the other three guys jamming, there's a lot of those yeah. three guys jamming. Where it's, it's 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 at the root of it, it's it's Lars and James like going over riffs and arrangements, and Rob's kind of there just like adding low end. Yeah, you know. But there's times where you see like Rob like throwing his opinion in a little bit, like well, what if we did this? You know. Yeah. But like you don't see Kirk in there a lot, and they and they do kind of ignore it. I got, I must say, it, it, yeah. It, um, I think so. I can't I can't say the specific one, but Rob's like, we should just hold on an A here. And, oh, yeah. and James is not really listening yeah. to him. Um, there's there's two things I want to camp out in for a second before we do our Sweet 16. Yeah. Wait, I got one more takeaway before we do that. Okay. Uh, like a wrap ta- up? Should we save it? No, no, no. Just you, you said what were some things about. Oh, okay, Kittleman. yeah. Have I just, have we been interrupting that for like 20 minutes? <laughs> no, it's all okay. good. 
Uh, I believe Paul has just hit 100 on the zone yeah. meter. I'm so zoned in. The zone meter has peaked Look, for Paul move, Moak. Paul, move into the fear. Okay. Please. I. <laughs> so, the biggest takeaway for me, dude, is the amount of documentation that Greg and I can't remember the female engineer's oh, name. Oh, yeah. What's her name? Her, Crap. His assistant. Yeah, yeah. We need to know her name because she's a champion. She, she's great. Yeah. The, the amount of notes, the copious notes that yeah. they take of every take. Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Of the feeling of whether that take was good or not, who shined in it, right. all of that stuff. To, to then go back and, I mean, I think, I think it's safe to say for every hour that Metallica put in this record that Greg had at least two. Yeah. And yeah, I would say 100%, that's, yeah. I would say that's, yeah, conservative. And to me, like, that was just so impressive because for me as a producer, like, a lot of it, I mean, we take notes and keep track of stuff. You have to. That's part of the job. But a lot of mine is going off a of feel, and once I find that, that take where I feel like it's magic, all the rest of the notes, like, kind of fall away. And it's like, okay, well, who cares about everything else that just happened because that was amazing. Right. He... It seems to me after watching this was the guy that's like, that was amazing. We're done. But then would still go back and be like, but, but let's make sure it wasn't, you know, that there wasn't another pass that was even greater. Right. You know? yeah. And not only that, he's got someone who is as <laughs> hands on as Lars saying like there, there's an interesting thing that happened on hardware that I wanted to talk to you guys about where yeah. in pre-production, they did a lot of jamming at yeah. HQ, and they're all kind of set up, as you said. They're kind of set up to record everything. Yeah. Yeah. But he talks about how during pre-production, they weren't paying as much attention to sounds as they were when they they, they got the songs out, and then they're really dialing in sounds. Right. On Now That We're Dead, he says Lars kind of landed on this thing that he loved, that he thought was magic. And because the question came up, were there any samples used? Right. And Greg says, you know, one of the biggest samples we did use was Lars loved this sound from Now That We're Dead that even when we got past pre-production and we're actually dialing it in, we never beat it. Yeah. So we actually took samples from the pre-production. In in terms of you talking about note keeping. Yeah. Like, well, I, I read that same passage. Because you know that's what like it months is? and months later, right? Because Lars had an iPod that they would put everything on. And this is this is and he was just driving you, his car, I guess, or listen to it. Or. Yeah, but he would go back, even though they had already like made an album version of it. You would think a normal, sane person on this planet we'll would move be on. like, "Here's my album version of the song." Lars would go back to something they did ten months earlier, right? Yeah, and be like, "I don't know, man. This has an energy." And but that I mean, that just goes to show, like, the, like Lars's involvement in these records. Like, you know, people can dog on Lars, and he's annoying. Dude, he's, the, he, he's the hero One, of Metallica. He really is. Like, he, he is he, the definition of zoning it. He really is. He actually is the guy that would be at a, at a thousand on the zero to a hundred scale. Yeah, he, Lars has been zoning it since 1983. Well, and um, I I think that's the Lars is the biggest uh, puzzle piece in why what you just said about Metallica still being a relevant band that puts out like current material and they're not a legacy act. Yeah. I think Lars is the main. I mean, I think James obviously has a songwriting in him, right? But Lars is the one that's like unwilling to fall into that legacy category. I, I yeah. think I think James is the engine, forever the engine. Yep, he's the heart. But I think Lars is the one who keeps that engine polished. Yeah, keeps it clean. He's the keep, mechanic. Keeps yeah. it running. 
He gives it fuel. He gives it fire. He gives it that which it desires. Well, he gives it. <laughs> Dude, oh, we have, Papa, are you here? I didn't know that anyone else was here tonight. Oh, my gosh. Paul, well, I can't believe. Uh, hang on. Paul, Paul. <laughs> I can't believe you uh, you walked in and Papa showed well, up. Well, turn this on, I see red. Adrenaline cracked and cracked my head. Nitro, junkie, paint me dead. Wow, oh, Papa, thank you for that little excerpt from uh, one of your famous <laughs> readings, Fuel. Well, that's from a song called Fuel. Oh, man, thank you so much. It's about how cars go fast. <laughs> well, you do love I the speed. You love the speedway, well, it's either about intravenous drug use or it's about how uh, cars need need uh, food, as it were, to run good. Yeah, man. This is amazing. <laughs> good insight from Pawpaw. Well, now everybody. that we've heard from Pawpaw, I want to transition into... Uh, so, we've said a lot about Greg. Do we feel like we've said it all? We love him. Maybe we love him. Uh, I mean, I, I would say that... I, I mean, I, I wholeheartedly hope that... Greg is involved in the next Metallica record, whenever that may be, Greg, in 25 years, when they're all 94. Um, but I mean, I, I think we all we uh, we're all aware that Greg is is actively, I think, on the Metallica payroll. And do you does think it, Greg's does it, listening? Hey, Greg. Greg, do you think at night, like when I put my hand against the window, that he puts his hand against the window too? Greg, I think you're and right. And that yeah. we're maybe looking at the same moon. My name's, oh. my name's Paul. I know you're not used to hearing me because you're just used to the other two guys, but let's turn that bass up on Justice for the re-release. Please. Ooh, now, are they going to give that to Greg to do? What's that? Are they going to give that project to Greg? I, I would think that because he's all things Metallica now that, yeah, that would come across Although, his table. I, I will I will rebuttal that. He did the movie. He did. Uh, I will we say We should mention that, he also did all the engineering and the mixing for Through the Never. Yes. Yeah. Which sounds and it's it's one of the best sounding live oh it's movies of all which if you if you go I read a, a bunch about making that in preparation for tonight and making a record is like a piece of cake compared to making uh, the soundtrack for a movie like they basically uh, they took a number of live shows and he said guitars never changed but like you know drum sounds would change night after night because you've got all these mics around a drum and the audience mics ambient noise when you're playing different every night he said the first night that they hung the audience mics they they realized after recording them that like the positions that they hung them in were were no good because they had these big booms that like you know with the cameras or whatever that made like came in front of the mics and ruined the sound Mm, of the mics so then they got to make night one sound like night two right if they're putting two passes together for the same song, like the the whole process was just like so much more intense to me than mixing a record, you know? It's kind of like Bob, you know, Bob mixing and engineering S&M. It's like people don't understand, like those weren't proper records. They don't get the credit for those. But right. To, to, well, to, some, to, to they're mix, more labor intensive. But to mix sure. through the never and through yeah. the never... I can't say it enough. It sounds so good. Oh, it sounds so good. God damn it. It sounds great. They had like eight sound engineers mixing that record. And the World Wire Tour, um, this is new for LiveMetallica.com, but it's not Greg himself, but it's his team of engineers and mixers are mixing every live show from this tour. Yeah. And it sounds fucking incredible. It sounds great, yeah. Yeah, every time, like it's, like when when they debuted, spit out the bone recently. Right, like, London, second night in London. Right? Yeah, I remember like 
immediately getting on YouTube and looking up YouTube clips was pretty rough. It's pr- it sounded pretty rough because it was some, from a goddamn phone. Exactly. It's one of these fucking people we talked yeah. about. Exactly. Um, so you're part of the problem, basically. Yeah. Thanks you're a part lot. Of the problem, or you're part of the sol- solution. So, solution. But well, then you, you're part. Hindsight, you're part of the problem. You're part of the solution. Hindsight's fifty fifty. Hindsight's fifty fifty now. Uh, <laughs> if I'm looking at my graphing calculator correctly, who uh, told you that? Uh, this fo- a, a coach in my high school. <laughs> now gather around, men. Gather around. Take a knee. Take a knee. Now listen. Hindsight fifty fifty. Everyone's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> the best vision. Well, you can lead a horse to water now, but uh, if you teach a man to fish, he'll swim forever. <laughs> Amen. Like, damn, man. that's deep. That's deep, deep bird, yeah. A bird in the hand is worth. A bird in the hand is worth two if you look a gift horse in the mouth. <laughs> oh. Just mixing all these metaphors. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> my oh. lifestyle determines my death style. Well, my lifestyle determines my invisible kids. And my lifestyle determines my flush it out style. <laughs> How do you do that so Just fast? Getting the lyrics man. wrong because oh. uh, I've spent too much time thinking about th- this band. <laughs> Blacken is the end, so I dub the <laughs> exactly. battery <So>, forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> to live is to Orion. Amen, man. Amen. <laughs> Okay, so I have this segment I want to introduce to you guys. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right, now what I've done is, since we're celebrating our our homie, Greg Fiddleman, is I've taken the, in my opinion, the eight best songs from Death Magnetic and the eight best songs from Hardwired to Self-Destruct, and we're going to do a sweet 16. Now, this is an idea I got from our dear friends at Podcast Rock City. If you guys are out there and you're KISS fans, you need to listen to Podcast Rock City. It's my favorite KISS podcast these motherfuckers are legit. I love them. Do you like Kiss? I'm a massive Kiss fan. I've heard. Much to the embarrassment <laughs> of my family. Your family. You like, brought like, shame on your family. Like your parents? Are oh, like, I'm sure uh, your daughter hates that you love Kiss. I haven't gotten her into it yet. I'm, I, she's, I've now made my daughter a Beatles fan. Nice. Uh, we're nice. on the Beatles now, so I'm, I'm hanging in there with that. That's, dude, hold on to that, man. So here's how this is going to work. <laughs> How do you go from all you need is love to love gun? <laughs> Pretty easily. All you need is love gun. Exactly. Yeah. Ethan just did it. <laughs> yeah. Because he is a man child. That's the answer. I'm kind of a man child. <laughs> yeah. So here's what we're going to do. I've taken these 16 songs and we're going to pit them against each other. And we're going to find out right now in about 10 minutes, what is the best Greg Fiddleman produced Metallica song? Here's the deal. We got three votes. Two out of three wins. Okay. For the song to move to the next round. So this is like a this is like a bracket tournament, kind of like got a yeah. bracket tournament. That's yeah. right. So if you're if you're, I mean, I don't watch college basketball, but this is like March Madness right now, right? Right. And I, well, I, we I, don't, I don't watch it either, so I cannot corroborate that statement. So because I don't know. I know As that's a what's non-basketball called. watcher, I can tell you, I'm not sure. <laughs> we okay. don't know. That's don't. I have toured with a lot of college sports fans. I'm not one of them. I like I like adult sports. Um, it's let's call it metal madness. The the sweet sixteen metal madness. Okay, well, okay, cool. Whatever. I don't know. Now, what I did try to do is I tried to sort of um, dynamically and thematically match 
the Death Magnetic song to the Hardwired song. Okay. Okay. It's not a perfect science. These records don't fucking overlap on each other like a like a thing that overlaps that I like can't Dark think of. Dark Side of the Moon and The Wizard of Oz. Exactly. It's not one of these cases, all right? Okay. It's rough. Got it. Now, but best of three wins, and then moves to the next round. All right. First round. That was just your life or hardwired? This is already really hard. Paul. H- hardwired. I'm going to go hardwired. <laughs> well, uh, uh, hardwired moves on the next round, although it's incorrect. <laughs> that was just your life. Definitely should have gone. Uh, was that that would have been your vote? Oh, for sure. I'm not a big fan of Hardwired. The really? song, the song. It's not my favorite song. It's probably it's my um it's my second least favorite song on the record after uh, uh, Murder One. Okay, okay. But uh, okay, whatever. <laughs> now this was going to be tougher, Ethan. I know. <laughs> okay. Fuck. We're so fucked, by the way. <laughs> okay. No, that's Hardwired. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Halo on Fire. Versus the Unforgiven Three. Do it, Clint. I'm gonna go Halo on Fire. Unforgiven Three. All right, tiebreaker goes to Paul Moak. Halo on Fire. Halo on Fire. Woo! He right. To quote Lars, "Fuck." Oh, I knew that. Scream into the mic as loud as you can. I knew that was gonna be tough for you. Okay. Uh, The end of the line versus Atlas Rise. Mmm. Tough, right? I'm going Atlas Rise. I'm going to the end of the line. Paul? Atlas. Oh, man. My man. All right. Atlas moves on to the next round. Broken, beaten, scarred versus cyanide. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Not cyanide. I'm not cyanide. I'm not cyanide. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's dark in HQ1. Broken, beaten, scarred versus confusion. Uh, I'll take broken, beaten, scarred. Agreed. I will also take Broken Beat and Scar. Okay, it's unanimous. Wow. We have our first That's unanimous That's probably going to be the only one. Okay. Um, oh, this one's tough for me. The Day That Never Comes versus Dream No More. Ooh. Mm. Ooh. Um, damn it. This is a hard one. Yeah, pretty rough, right? I think this is, this is, this is harder than that. Uh, oh, shit. Um... Day that never comes. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. Oh, unanimous wow. again. That is hard though, because like Dream No More. Well, Dream No More is a jam. Yes. It's one of my favorites. A jam yes. that we just shit away into the wind. It's gone <laughs> forever. <laughs> we can never listen to it again. We actually, it out of out of the world. <laughs> Sorry. I just think Day Never Comes. It it contains. Dream No More is the sort of in the lineage of Sabbath True and the thing that should not be. Devil's yes, Dance. I agree. Metallica gives you heavy. Day Never Comes is the... It's the fourth it's the, track. It's the fade to black. Yeah. The sanitarium. The sanitarium into the thrash ending. Yes, It yes. just has everything we love about this band. Okay. Yes. Uh, cyanide. Now, this is... These, I think these are on par. Cyanide versus Now That We're Dead. Now uh, That We're Dead. I agree. They are on par. You say... Okay, so Paul says Now That We're Dead. Yeah. Ooh, damn it. Okay. Um, Ethan, we can... I already going, know what you're going to pick. All sinners, the I'm future. Going, I'm going cyanide. I'm going now that we're dead. Oh! You, you're kidding me. No. It's one of my favorites. I thought you were going with cyanide. <laughs> Am I a Christian now? Have uh, you turned? No, I'm not. Clint found the Lord. 
Well, what I did was I was digging up a stump in my backyard, and uh, under that stump I found Jesus. Uh, I he was there this whole but time. But now that you're dead, you can live forever where? Uh, hopefully wherever Mark Twain and Carl Sagan are. I'll, I'll live wherever they are. Uh, I think I can guide you there on my floating carpet. Clinton. I thought for sure you knew I was going to guess now that we're dead. That's my jam. I I just I assume admit, that lyrically I admit, you couldn't I, I be admit, I don't know what he's talking about, but we have mentioned that on the show before. Yeah, with that, I think with that, that song, I think it, I think it does talk about eternal life. Well, now I that think we're dead, that we can through live sobriety, James has some kind of relationship with the concept of God. I totally. I, I would argue that well, now that we're uh, that uh, hardwired self destruct is his most religiously overt record. I mean, he. he I, I mean, think. There, I think here comes revenge. Deals with it. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Am I savage? Deals with it. Um, I think now that we're dead. Deals with it. I mean, James, Do you think James any has, of these songs will be in the Baptist hymnal in 100 years? I'd give it maybe 25 years, yeah. Oh, I'd give it five years. Um, no, I mean, the James, there, there, there's, there's interviews with James where he talks about, quote-unquote, his higher power. Uh, I don't think he wants to come across as sounding cheesy when he talks about religion right. or, or, or what, what's helped him maybe through sobriety. But, yeah, I mean, I think that it's no, it's no doubt in my mind that he has found some sort of religion Right, um, with tattoos he's gotten, things like that. There's a lot of things ever since sobriety that have gotten to this point. So, I well, think lyrically, it's definitely represented on this record. Yeah, totally. All right, now this one was tough for me. This one is tough for me because ner- you don't know what my answer is. Yet. I'm nervous. I don't. All nightmare long. Great one. Damn it. Thrash masterpiece. Yeah. Versus. Well, thrash masterpiece. Don't say it. Moth in the flame. Ugh. Moth in the flame. All mm. nightmare long, luck runs out. Moth in the flame. I'm going moth in the flame. <laughs> I, I've I've been listening to that record obviously a ton. Okay. And every time that fucking song comes on, I get so pumped. Paul. All nightmare and I'm straight long. I'm going moth. Ooh, oh yeah, dude. my man. I think moth is an instant classic, and I think it might be in the running for the best Metallica song ever. I think it's up there with Creeping Death and Blackened. Best Metallica song ever? I think it's up there. Wow. I'm cringing as I say that. Yeah. Clint, uh, Clint didn't make a cringing face. Although, All Nightmare Long is my fucking jam, dude. So oh, All Nightmare I, Long is fucking great. That, that was tough for me. When I first listened to Death Magnetic and I got to that track, it's it's I would say it's either my number one or number two favorite chorus of the whole song. Hmm. Luck runs out <laughs> Headfield's vocals on Hunt You Down With Mercy, like it's, the whole song's great, but that chorus is, God, Hunt You Down On Nightmare yeah. Long. Yeah. The melody's so great. I know. Oh, it's so awesome. I know. That was a tough call, man. I know. It's a great title, too, man. Oh, so yeah. great. And it loosely is part of the Cthulhu sort of, right. that thing, the thing that should not be, Dream No More, Call right. It Cthulhu. All Nightmare Long is tied into that, so it's sort of part of that mythology. Right. Sweet Amber, I get it, yeah. <laughs> How sweet are you? <laughs> How sweet? How sweet is this right yeah, now? Yeah. Don't stand now? By the way, l- let me check in real quick. How sweet are your zones right now? <laughs> I am currently, as I have been this entire episode, rocking 100%. Okay, I'm at 100 now. 98. Are we talking about our zone level or our drunk level? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that one. Now this one is. Now we're ending our sort of our first big round. This is just the first round. Well, the, well, yeah. It yeah, is. Okay. Go to the next bracket. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now. For the title of Record Ender Thrash Closers, we've got My Apocalypse, mm. one of my homeboy Ethan's favorites, it versus is, yeah. 
spit, spit out, the out the fucking bone. bone. Oh, now dude. I'm going spit out the bone. Agreed. Spit out the bone. All it's right. unanimous. Wow. Yeah. Okay, My Apocalypse is a fucking great song. It's a great album closer. I mean, from the intro, I mean, that that is a barn burner dude, song. spit out the bone, man. But spit out the bone is fucking awesome. I mean, you heard... That, that's why I chose to put it the intro to this episode. It's like... Fucking spit out the bone. It's fucking yeah. awesome. This is the most... It's one of the most anticipated songs for them to debut live. Sure. And they All finally right. did, and people lost their shit. You guys ready for the next round? They're like, this I just ate two. there. What? Here we go, round two. This shit's gonna get real dicey. Yeah. All right, Hardwired. Lead off track of the new record. Yes. Hardwired. That's what's Versus Atlas Rise. Ooh. Ooh, I'm going Atlas Rise. I'm going Atlas. Me too. You would have gone Atlas? Yeah. All right, unanimous. I love I was wrong about how much unanimous voting we would have. All right. Halo on Fire versus Broken Beaten Scarred. Halo. 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 Unanimous again. Dang, man. God, we need some fucking drama up in this bitch. All right, here's a pretty tough one. This is tough. All right. Okay. The Day That Never Comes versus Moth in the Flame. Ooh, that's a tough one. Yikes. Yikes. Moth. What do you say, Ethan? (laughs) The pressure. Day That Never Comes. Tiebreaker falls on me. Clint. I'm going Moth. Uh, yeah, I love Moth so much, dude. Final four. I don't even know if that's. It is. I mean, we got the, one more to go before we got a, a final this four. This is a fucking. This is a hard thing. I, now that we're dead, versus spit out the bone. Spit out the bone. Spit. Now that we're dead. <laughs> I'm not for sure you were gonna say spit. <laughs> well, well you, spit wins. we can live well, forever, you, you, dude. You I'm lose. just trying to convert you. That's true. All right, round three. Is this would would this be considered Final Four, or Great Eight, or whatever? I, I don't know enough about no, the that, that nomenclature last one, that of sports. Last one was great Eight okay. or whatever they call it. All right, Atlas Rise versus Moth in the Flame. Wow, best Greg Fieldman produced Metallica song. I'm going Atlas Rise. Agreed. Oh, it's obviously Moth. You but were I going guess, Moth, of course. Sorry. <laughs> I do, uh, listen. I, it's it's a it's now. At, it, by the way, now Atlas rises in the running for best Greg Fillman produced song of all of them, and you think it's Atlas Rise? Atlas Rise is fucking great. <laughs> it is awesome. It's one. Of, it's one of my favorite Hetfield vocals on the whole record. Okay, check it out. Halo on fire versus spit out the bone. Mm-hmm. Now that's fucking tough. Do you go the like old school thrash route and or say do you go the, the bone, sort of go, like, fade the black, under, fade, under, sort of ballady that turns um, it. Right. Brown, brown, da, 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 that fucking gosh. outro. Hello, darkness, say goodnight. I'm ha- I'm happy to answer first. Um, as much as I love what they came up with with spit out the bone, I'm going with hail on fire. I think it's one of the best. I agree. Most well written songs. It's unanimous, isn't it? Yep. We all we we first. Okay, hang on. Sorry to the listeners. Just got to say, we all just kicked spit out the bone. Not to the curb, but it made it. It made it to the. We spat out that bone. We did spat out that bone. And I shat out my phone. (laughs) Well. And then held it up for the entire concert and recorded (laughs) this entire sweet sixteen. Okay, the title. For the best Greg Fiddleman produced Metallica song. 
So we just we just passed the final four. This is this is the this is final. It. We got two. This is we got, it's, this is between two songs. Atlas Rise versus Halo on Fire. Paul. Judas Kiss. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Consider this uh, contest fucking over. <laughs> Wait, Atlas so Rise and what? Halo on Fire. Atlas Rise and Halo on Fire. Atlas Rise. A lot of pressure for you, Clint. Halo on Fire. I'm going straight up Halo on Fire. Oh! I think you guys would stick together. Oh, well, it wasn't about... It was, I mean, you guys are both my fucking homeboys. Duh. But, you know, if if I'm happy saying Halo on Fire is the best... It, it has everything we love, right? It does, yeah. To me, uh, to me, Halo and Fire is like that fade of black. It's got that kind of key change at the end, and that big build up to that uh, that good Kirk melody on guitar into a solo. James's vocal going from the verse to the chorus, yeah. <laughs> that whole that yeah. build up. When I first listened to this record, when I downloaded it, then purchased it on vinyl, whatever. The first time I heard the full song of Halo and Fire, when they went from the verse to the chorus. I literally had chills on my fucking entire body. It was so good. It's a powerful song. Yeah, I'm oh, cool yeah. with that. And especially post rehab, like the the imagery seems to be, he's talking about you know I fear to turn out the light, the darkness can't go away. He's kind right. of talking about I'm trying to be good in this world. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. my halo is on fire because I'm still struggling with what that yeah. looks like. And that's Such something a badass image. And that's oh, something yeah. where you know we've been joking about sort of where we land on what we believe about higher things. But yeah. I think that's something that we can all sort of agree on. Absolutely, sure. We wrestle course, with yeah. that. Yeah. And I got to give homie to my boy uh, James Hetfield. That that hook at the end, he wrote that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah there, there's a big section in the in yeah. the making of hardware on that part, and there's no Kirk to be found, and he's yeah. playing that part. And I got to say, the the ending solo has grown on me a little bit, but I think it, it's a wasted moment that could have been fade to black yep. level outro solo. I 100% mm-hmm. agree. That it he kind been... of has started landing on live. Really? Right. Kirk's been murdering that live, yeah. but yeah. on the record, on our like, on our eternal document of this song, yeah, yeah, I think it's a missed opportunity. I, I hate to say it. You know what? It, it dude, is very after, good. After but... this weekend of uh, watching all this, and then I went back and watched like cunning stunts, and I miss. Short haired era Kirk. Oh, I love the, it. LeBray piercing. piercing. Guy Liner. I don't miss the fashion aspect of it, but I miss the intensity of his. Yeah, he was on fire. The, he he really was Halo was. on fire right yeah. there. <laughs> and you know what else? While I'm at it with the puns, <laughs> I really think that there was no better way to end this sports analogy contest than me to come in second because that pretty much is like my entire life in sports. Oh, okay, cool. So, it, it feels great. <laughs> me would be last. Yeah. I'm first. I'm Ron Burgundy. I, go fuck yourselves, <laughs> Melody Podcast. And with that, I think we should say goodbye. I think we had a good run with this. I mean, episode. this was awesome. Yeah. Well, let's let's all take a, a quick moment and just thank the great Greg Fiddleman. Yes, for making some great fucking Metallica songs. I, with those I'm dudes. very grateful to Greg Fiddleman. I'm glad he came into their lives. I'm glad Rick Rubin got him hooked up with Metallica. Yep. I'm glad they've made a record that is as good as. Almost everything they've ever done. Yeah. And I hope he's here to stay. And I'm I, I'm really excited about what the future holds with this band. I, I think that Greg Philman is, is here to stay for a good while. I mean, if you think about it, there's only been two producers they've ever worked with that have only done one album. Rick Rubin and Paul Curcio. With Cur- the guy who killed them all. 
Yeah, Paul Curry. But you had Fleming. Paul Rudd. Paul, Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Excuse me. I was well, fumbling. Samsonite. Yeah, J- Jason Seagal mixed it, I think. Yeah. Steven Seagal mixed it. Steven Seagal <laughs> yeah, mastered Steven, it, actually. After yeah. he did Under Siege 2. Three. Yeah. Three, or three? Was it <laughs> yeah. three? Back yeah. Under Siege? Well, <laughs> to, to be serious for a second. <laughs> Don't do that. Greg has Why? been working with this band for 10 years. Holy shit. That's so true. It, well, I mean, de- I mean, Death Magnetic was 08. I mean, and he did Lulu. He did Lulu, Death I'm sorry, Magnetic. What, what's yeah. that? Exactly. Dude, whether you want to well, discount it or not, t- we're coming up I on. Know. T- he's we- not discounting it because he had to sit through the whole thing. I know. So I'm- Lulu, Death Magnetic, through the never, through the never. never. That's four H- major projects. Yeah, hardwired. That's four major projects with the band. I he's I hope dude. that he sticks around, but he's given a lot of his life to Metallica. Yes, um, and he's probably made. A significant amount of money at he's this probably time. Made of course, at least a hundred dollars. At least a hundred dollars. He's, he's probably at least recoup what they spent on the studio. <laughs> he can at least afford his electric bill. Um, before we kind of close this out, I do, um, I do want to ask Paul because we've mentioned this briefly on the show before. What would you think in the future of uh-huh. what? Hey, hang on. Let me ask a question. It's like the smirk on your face right now. Because I'm, I'm curious about your answer. Oh, he's smirking. What would you feel about in the future? So Greg sticks around. What about another album where it's like a co-production thing of Greg and Bob Rock? Ooh. I don't think those two entities can be on the same record. Do you think that Bob would kind of try to overtake it? Because he's like... He's the senior I, producer. Very hands-on. I, I, well, I just think that unless... Unless Bob has a great amount of humility that no one at his status should be able to yeah. accrue. <laughs> uh, I just think, I think he's been in the driver's seat too many times on, on literally a hundred records sure, sure. for him to say, yeah, I'll have to make, I'll have to take every decision that is made and run it by someone else and make sure that we're both okay with it. Yeah. I just don't see that happening. He already has to do that with Lars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's yeah, very, exactly. very true. Very true. <laughs> For sure. I could I could see Bob like if they were co-producing like if, if Greg had an idea and Bob didn't like it, he would just turn around and go, "Um, hey man, the Black Album." Well, and coming cool. from be quiet. from Greg's p- perspective, be like, "Dude, I I made a critically acclaimed record with you guys after I was a part of the team that brought you out of the ashes." Yeah. I've put in my time, and now you're yeah. going to make me split it with a guy that hasn't been in your life for 20 years. Well, and let's be honest. I mean, Greg Fiddleman has reignited a fire in this band that we haven't seen in a while. For totally. sure. I think there, I think there was that bit of a fire with Death, Death Magnetic, but like Hardwired is well, they sure as hell didn't sell out a stadium tour on on the World Magnetic yeah. run, right? I mean, this is this feels this <laughs> this feels like a different kind of moment. Oh yeah, absolutely. To I, that, I, I wonder though if they've. I wonder if the Fiddleman relationship with Metallica is now we we achieved what we set out to do. I wonder if Metallica at this point will say like, "What's next for Metallica? We can't just do the same thing with Greg because we made the album that I think Death Magnetic was the trainer album to get to Hardwired in terms of oh, what yeah. they were trying to accomplish and you know. I think what might be next for Metallica is to come down to Nashville, Tennessee, and make a record with Paul Moak. Hey. Lars, Lars, call me. We we know you're you listening. You haven't been answering my voicemails. <laughs> you haven't been answering my my MySpace yeah. friend requests. The, the the plus side to Metallica doing a record at Paul's studio, the Smokestack, Nashville, HQ Tennessee. Four. HQ 
Well, we haven't done an episode there, so don't 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 okay. start calling it Sorry, HQ4 man. yet. Just well, we have thinking. HQ1, we have HQ2, which is Clint's house, and we have HQ Mobile. HQ3 is, HQ3 is, is the uh, mobile version, car, my, yeah. my forerunner. Um, if we do an episode at, at Smokestack, which I'm sure we will at some point. It'll sound a lot better, I can tell you that. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> zone it. On that note, my, my zone it level just fucking plummeted to like a two. <laughs> We do want to say thanks to our friend Paul for coming on the show. Oh, yeah. man, it's such man. a pleasure, man. I love this. Paul's a busy guy, and he's got a family, and he's got a he's got a studio he runs, and he did a bunch of research and cares a lot about this conversation and this band, and we're 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 really all of us lucky to have him here with us. Absolutely, of course, yeah. If you guys are on the ride with us and you heard what we said at the top of the episode, please consider go leaving us that iTunes review. It's not for our ego. In fact, we're giving you shit back for doing it. Oh, we're yeah. going to be drawing the names for the first five winners this month in a few yeah. weeks. Oh, yeah. Um, come visit us on all the social bullshit. We interact with you guys all the time. Yeah. Um, we hit a hundred thousand downloads this week. Yeah, it's insane. We, we, we thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Congratulations, thank you. Guys. thank you. Wow. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, we, uh, a few days ago we posted about it and it's pretty mind blowing, man. Like it, we, we, I think when we started this thing, we didn't even consider like, Oh, will we hit, we didn't have a goal by the end of the year. We I were think like, we, I think we had hoped that we would make compelling content that Metallica fans would appreciate. Right. But we, I don't think we thought much about it beyond that. No, we, we, I mean, we, we obviously wanted it to grow. We wanted to reach as many Metallica fans as we could and kind of like become, you know, more part of this Metallica family, but we never had a number in mind. And like, you know, when we hit 50,000 a few months ago, it was like, we were kind of looking at our stats going, Holy shit. We're on track to hit 100,000 before the end of the year, and we did it. It's insane. Blows my mind. So we are thankful for all you guys listening, for all you guys supporting the show, for interacting with us on social media, all this stuff, emailing us. It, it You guys are the reason that we hit 100,000 downloads. Yeah, we, I mean, we sure as hell couldn't do without you. If you do, are interested in being sort of part of this machine that's growing, you want to support us, go check out that Patreon. We, we're offering up really cool stuff over there. It's patreon.com slash Podcast. The very minimum, if you want to let us know what you think about the show, you can email us at metalupyourpodcastshow at gmail.com. And we'll see you guys on the motherfucking flip-flop. And with that, I'm going to say peace. Adios. Thank you. <laughs> Bringing it back. Paul Mook special. <laughs> Bringing it back. If you were our advisor, what would you say? Then I would say, delete that. <laughs>